Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is part two of the show which aired on January 30th and 31st, 2024. I've been doing this a lot lately since it takes a long time to edit the show and I don't want to make everybody wait a long time to hear the episode. I edit about half of it, then I post that up, and then I edit the second half and I post that a few days later. So this is the second half. If you haven't heard the first half, you should go back and listen to that first. What I'm going to do starting this week is I'm going to include in the intro the topics which we're going to cover. I'm going to copy that portion of the last show where we're listing the topics that are going to be on this show, just so you kind of know what's coming up. So if you've already heard that, you can fast forward it, but I just want to have this in here for completeness. So here comes the agenda for just this part two, and then we will get right into part two of the show. Enjoy. Tropicana Las Vegas is planned to shut down on April 2nd, 2024. That has leaked out from an internal company memo that just broke yesterday. So it's also a new story. This was in anticipation of converting the site to a ballpark for the Oakland A's who will become the Las Vegas A's. But hold on a second. That's not a done deal. It may not actually happen. The closure is going to happen on April 2nd for sure, but it's possible the A's may not actually come to Las Vegas. I will explain why. I'll explain what the holdup is and what the issues are when we get to that segment. Then we're going to talk about Phenom Poker. You may have seen, if you're on Poker Twitter, various people that you like and trust within the poker community, including weekly Poker Fraud Alert listener Ari Engel, who usually doesn't promote anything, so they had eight sponsored pros promoting this new site, which isn't even complete yet. So you can't play on Phantom Poker, but it's something that's coming soon, supposedly. And you may have seen some trusted names in poker, such as Ari, tweeting about it. So what is Phantom Poker? It claims to be revolutionary and so-called trustless. That doesn't mean you can't trust them. It means you don't have to trust them. I'll explain that when we do the segment. But but is it really what they claim that they say it is, and is it something that has any chance to succeed? So I will talk all about Phantom Poker, and you'll understand it very well when we are done with that segment. At least I hope you will. Clark County passed a law against standing on pedestrian bridges. That is, you have to keep on walking. You have to keep on moving. If you stop on the pedestrian bridge, then you're technically in violation of the law in Clark County. That is new. But that's a new law that's been passed. So should you, as a tourist to Las Vegas, be concerned if you have to stop for any reason, either to take a picture or to tie your shoe or whatever, if you just stop and stand for a second? Do you have to worry about them citing you or arresting you? I will explain that law and the reason they passed it when we get to that segment. We've talked before about follow-home robberies that have taken place from card rooms, especially in L.A., where these seem to be common and have been going on for decades and another one occurred this one from commerce a man was held at gunpoint at his home when he was followed home after a commerce session but there were some unusual factors to this entire follow home robbery especially one of the big factors that was unusual the thieves didn't watch him very closely because he was broke (laughs) 
Oops. Tip to anyone who wants to rob those leaving card rooms, make sure they're leaving with money. Make sure that they're cashing out chips from the table and not just like a few chips. They picked someone who went busto at commerce and then tried to rob him. Former Resorts World CEO Scott Sabella has pled guilty to federal charges. And now everybody's talking about Scott Sabella. Now it's big news. Now it's in the mainstream news. We've been talking about Scott Sabella and his shadiness since the beginning. And I had wondered, and I said so during these segments, why he kept getting involved in scandal after scandal, shady situation after shady situation, and Las Vegas media didn't give a crap about it. No one covered it. We covered it. The Nevada Current, which is an alternative publication in Nevada, covered it. But basically nobody else covered it. And now everybody's covering his pleading guilty to federal charges. So I'll tell you about that. And I'll remind you some of the other things that he's been involved with that don't have to do with the federal charges that are also shady. Barstow, California is right in between L.A. and Vegas when you drive between the two. It is right off I-15. And two Indian tribes are attempting to get a casino established there, which isn't a bad idea. The problem is, it's not Indian land. So do they have any chance? Because you have to have Indian land in order to establish a casino. It has to be on that land in California. So I will tell you whether they have any chance of establishing it and what mechanism they're trying to use and why Barstow would be a good location for a casino if one were to be there. A small casino in Maine known as Oxford Casino accidentally gave away $250 of free play to a lot of their patrons when they didn't mean to. It was a small contest where five people would win $250 in free play and they gave it to a ton of people. So I'll tell you what happened after that. Finally, and I put this at the end because I'm sick of saying this every year. I'm sick of covering this every year. It's just going to be a brief segment at the end. Poker Fraud Alert was snubbed once again for the GPI Awards. I know you're shocked, but we were not even nominated. In fact, I think one year we might have been nominated, or at least we were on the list of potential nominees, something like that. But we've never won, we've never come close to winning, and most or all of the years we are not even nominated which is not fair. I don't really care that much. It sounds like I care, but I don't care that much. I mean, it's just a stupid arbitrary poker award. But we really should be nominated. And when we get to that segment, I will tell you all the things that Poker Fraud Alert Radio is number one in. And we really are. I'm not making this up. I'll tell you all those things. And I will explain why this show really does deserve some kind of nomination if they're going to be giving out a Poker Podcast Award. If they're not, then of course we don't deserve one, but we definitely deserve it for Best Poker Podcast, at least to be nominated. At least to be nominated. Yes, I'm biased, but it's a little annoying how we're like never nominated. But the whole thing's kind of a circle jerk, so it's understandable. And now, our feature presentation. The Tropicana Las Vegas is closing down. There's been rumors about this for a long time. This is the site that has been discussed for the future Las Vegas A's. And that still is not a sure thing, which we will get to during this segment. 
But the Tropicana, which is old and has been around a long time, the question has been, when will it close down? And are they really going to implode it? The grand plan for the site it's on is to wreck the existing Tropicana to build a new ballpark for the Oakland A's moving to Las Vegas, which will be called the Las Vegas A's, and then build a brand new hotel on the same property, which will be called Bally's, which has nothing to do with the formerly named Bally's Hotel that's called, called the Horseshoe currently that's owned by Caesars. This would be a Bally's Hotel owned by the Bally Corporation and have nothing to do with that other Bally's that used to be down the street. So that is the plan. That has been the plan for a while. But whether that plan actually takes place is in question. However, the wheels are already starting to turn, even though the wheels might be driving them to nowhere. On January 29th, 2024, the following memorandum was released to employees of the Tropicana from Arik Nolas, who is the vice president and general manager of the Tropicana. It says, Team, we are now able to officially announce that Bally's is moving forward with the next steps necessary to make the Tropicana Las Vegas site the brand new home of the Athletics, a Major League Baseball team currently located in Oakland, California. While this is a great opportunity for the company, it comes with a bittersweet feeling as this means that operations at the Tropicana Las Vegas will shut down for redevelopment. Our expected closing date is April 2nd, 2024. In the interim, we will begin to close out all hotel bookings and relocate all reservations booked for April and beyond. The company will then begin its preparations to demolish the Tropicana Las Vegas and finalize its master plan, after which approximately nine acres will be granted to the athletics to develop their stadium. Now, it is true that prior to this announcement, it was noticed that you could not book April 2nd and beyond on the Tropicana website, and now we know why. But there are people who already have bookings from before that are from April 2nd and later. So they're saying that they're going to relocate these people. What they're probably going to do is either incentivize them to go to one of the other Bally's-owned properties in other cities. They don't have any other properties in Vegas, but to encourage them to go to a Bally's own property in another city with some kind of incentive. And if they don't want to do that, then they'll probably be given a reservation at a different hotel that's deemed equivalent that they will pay for. Something along those lines is my guess. We understand and appreciate the number of questions many of you have at this time. Please be assured that property leadership is working closely with Bally's leadership to assist all team members through this transition period. The company is committed to providing you with as many resources as possible, including employment opportunities across the company and severance packages to eligible employees. Because remember, these people are losing their jobs. So they're basically saying, we're going to try to find other jobs within the Bally Corporation. And if we can't, then if you qualify, we'll give you a severance package. We will also work with local agencies to assist with unemployment benefits and employment placement services along with local unions who can assist with placement of their members. More information regarding these opportunities can be found in our Frequently Asked Questions Guide. You can expect a second announcement from George Papanier, 
Bally's president, which will soon be shared with the rest of the company. On behalf of our entire leadership team, we deeply appreciate all the effort and incredible work our team has put forth during our time here, dating all the way back to the property's debut in 1957. We know these past few months have not been easy, but we cannot begin to express how thankful we are to have such a stellar team to work with day in and day out. We will continue to be committed to our guests and to each other, and to providing everyone with the excellent service Tropicana Las Vegas has been known for over the years. And then, in small print at the bottom of this, it says, All company internal communication and documents, regardless of format, shall be treated as confidential and proprietary information, and access and distribution should be restricted to authorized personnel. (laughs) Yeah. That memo was on January 29th. How many days did it take for that to make it to the internet? Zero point zero. Okay. How many hours did it take for this to make it to the internet? Zero point zero. Okay. How many minutes did it take to make it to the internet? Zero point zero. Okay. Not quite, but it made it lightning fast to the internet (laughs) despite that bullshit at the bottom like did they really think if they're gonna distribute this to every single employee that not one is going to give it to someone on social media to distribute come on now like why even write that just accept the fact that this type of memo is going to get out and that's that it's so stupid this is confidential and proprietary information access and distribution should be restricted to authorized personnel yeah bullshit Here they're at the end saying how much they appreciate everybody, and then they have to put that formality at the bottom to scare people into not distributing it. Who gives a shit? So this story gets out. I mean, they're not taking bookings past that date anyway. So why not just let the story get out? What do they think? This is going to stay a secret? Very dumb. So with the Tropicana closing down, and presumably is going to be blown up, in fact, I believe they've already set a date to blow it up in later 2024, I think like October, November. So presumably that's going to hold and it's going to get blown up. It's definitely going to close on April 2nd. So let's first go forward in time to April 2nd, 2024, and then go back 35 years to April 2nd, 1989. So we're going to go exactly 35 years before the upcoming closing date of the Tropicana. And let's take a look at the entire Vegas Strip, going from Vegas World, which was the former stratosphere, Vegas World all the way to the north, to the very southern end of the Strip. So in that entire stretch of the Strip, how many hotel casinos that were standing and operational on April 2nd, 1989, are standing and operational today even under a different name. How many think there is? How many of those are currently operating and how many are operating under the same brand? Well, the answer as far as how many are currently operating is nine, which is a very low number because there was a lot of them. There were a lot of casinos, even in 89, between Vegas World, which is now the Stratosphere, all the way to the very southern end of the Strip, like where the Mandalay Bay currently sits. So to only have nine left is very few, because these are big buildings. 
But everything else not only isn't operating, it's gone. So I'm counting in these nine anything that is still operating in the same building, even under a different name. So what are these nine that still remain? The northernmost one, and I missed this at first, but someone reminded me of it, that I was wrong in not counting it. Vegas World itself still exists in the form of the stratosphere. It's not just the stratosphere site. They actually did keep Vegas World and rolled it into the stratosphere property. So some of the stratosphere where you can stay is the old Vegas world. So that still counts. That whole tower is new, that big tall tower, but you can't stay in that tower. That's just a, an observational tower. So Vegas world is technically still standing. So that's number one. Number two is Sahara. Sahara is still there. It's been renovated, but it is still there. Circus Circus. That is, of course, still operational, still standing. I believe that opened in the late 60s. Harris. Harris took a few different forms, but as of 1972, it has been Harris and is still standing. And uh, same rooms that existed there in 89 are there in Harris. It's been expanded, but the rooms that were there in 89 are still operational today. And it's still called Harris. So those three still have the same branding. Sahara, Circus Circus, and Harris. The link, I'm talking about the hotel, not the outdoor mall area. That was once called Imperial Palace. In fact, it was for quite some time. That is still standing and operational in the original building. The Flamingo Hilton, now just called the Flamingo, that's still standing and operational. It's been renovated, but it's the exact same structure. That's one of the oldest hotels. I think that goes back to like the 40s. And that was called the Flamingo, and then it was called the Flamingo Hilton. So in 89, it was called the Flamingo Hilton. And now it's back to Flamingo. So the funny thing is it's back to the original name, but it had a different name in between. Caesar's Palace, built in uh, 1966 and expanded several times. That's still there, of course. Still operating under the same brand. Barbary Coast is now the Cromwell, but it is the same building. It doesn't look anything like Barbary Coast. Heavily renovated, but it is still the same building, same structure. Now, a number of these are Caesar's properties. Notice Harris, Imperial Palace, Flamingo, Caesar's Palace, and the Cromwell. <laughs> those, are, those are all original properties that were there uh, 35 years ago. Shows you how old some of these Caesar's places are. And, by the way, number nine, the final one, is also a Caesar's property. The old MGM Grand, not the one standing today, but the one known today as Horseshoe, that was also known as Bally's until recently. That was standing in 1989 and operating as MGM Grand. Or sorry, it was, that was actually Bally's then. So Bally's, which started off as MGM Grand and became Horseshoe recently, that was Bally's in 89. So that's it. So, Vegas World, Sahara, Circus Circus, Harris, Imperial Palace, Flamingo Hilton, Caesars Palace, Barbary Coast, and Bally's, a.k.a. MGM Grand, a.k.a. Horseshoe. Those nine, which you could have stayed in in 1989 in April, are all still standing and operating. Some under the same name, some under different names. They've been mostly renovated, but not completely. Everything else has been wrecked. Every other property that was standing in 89, that was a hotel casino, has been wrecked. So a lot of properties have been wrecked since then. 
shows you how quickly things change in Vegas. You may ask me, what about the Mirage? Wasn't the Mirage built in 1989? How come I didn't list that? Well, because the Mirage was not open yet in April of 1989. It did not open until November. The Mirage was the very first of the Strip mega resorts and pretty much kicked off the whole change of the Strip that gave rise to so many different mega hotel casinos that blew up all over the Strip that define it today. There's just a little bit of trivia about Vegas for you there. But let's get back to the whole Tropicana situation. So they're definitely closing on April 2nd, and I can't see that changing because it's not that far away. Someone posted a picture of Tropicana currently and showed that the P in Tropicana is not even lit up. (laughs) Shows how much they care about the property. John Mahaffey noticed on Twitter that some people wanted to try to stay at the Tropicana before it finally closes. And he noted that you'd be best off doing this sooner than later, because once they fully decide to close, they're going to really let things go downhill, because the expectation is they're going to just shut it down and then blow it up. So there's no point to maintain everything. They need to just barely maintain it to an operational status towards the end. So he tried to stay at the Riviera in its final days, and he said it was in horrible shape. <laughs> they, they basically stopped maintaining everything, so you should go do it now. So I think the P in Tropicana is the first thing to go. And things will get worse and worse. The last casino to ID me was the Tropicana. Now, how old do you think I was when they ID'd me? Keep in mind, I'm about 52 years old now. So how old do you think I was when they ID'd me at the Tropicana. I think maybe I was like 32, 33. Well, you'd be wrong. I was 50. <laughs> the Tropicana ID'd me at a blackjack table in 2022. And just in case you think this was some kind of way for them to figure out who I am and whether I should be there, I wasn't, because it was the dealer IDing me, and I just very quickly flashed the ID, and once she saw the year I was born, then she said, okay. So there was no scrutiny on my name, nor could she have possibly remembered my name and the spelling, which isn't all that easy, nor did anyone enter this name into a computer, nor, of course, did I show a player's card. So... The dealer really wanted to see my ID to make sure I was 21 in 2022. I thought she was joking at first. She says, can I see ID? And I laughed and I said, oh, yeah, I bet there's a big concern I might be under 21. And then she just kind of sat there stone faced. She's like, yeah, I need to see some ID, sir. I go, wait, you're serious? She says, yeah, I need to see ID. I said, why? She says, well, I, I need to see ID. I said, why? Do you really think I could possibly be under 21? And she said, well, I need to check your ID. I said, well, do you check everybody's ID here? And she said, no. I said, then why are you checking my ID? How can you possibly think I'm under 21? Like, I really would be one of the oldest looking 20-year-olds in history. I mean, you guys have seen me. Could you see anyone with two working eyes ever believing I could be in my 20s? Forget 21. Could you see anyone believing I'm 29? Like, how ridiculous is that? 
It's one thing to ID me when I'm like in my early 30s. And I actually had a pretty young look in my early 30s, so I could even understand that. But can you imagine, and I'm 50 years old, asking to see my ID? And again, this is not like when you walk into certain properties downtown like Circa, where they ID everybody, even like 80-year-olds. And it's not like they were checking my ID to make sure I was allowed on property. This was to check my ID for age. She didn't do it to everybody, and she didn't look at my name. She looked at it too quickly, and it wasn't entered anywhere. And again, it was not the pit boss. It wasn't security. It was the damn dealer. So I kept trying to get her to explain how they could have possibly asked me for my ID. And she just wouldn't explain it. (laughs) Maybe she was embarrassed when she saw the year I was born. But I wasn't even flattered by this because something was just wrong there. Something was really wrong. And it was like near the very beginning, too. You can't even say, well, you know, maybe they're suspicious about your play. It was near the very beginning. I just didn't get it. I don't know what it is about me in that particular session why she thought I may have been under 21. Some of these will have a policy that they'll ID you if you look under 30. I guess maybe some will do under 35, but I don't look under 35 either. If they had to ID you under 35, I would say it's ridiculous to ask me at this point. Nobody looks at me and thinks I'm 34. At Caesars Windsor, there's this gigantic line to get ID'd to go between the hotel and the casino. And sometimes the line's not that bad, but one time it was just like ridiculously long and like everybody in line was in their 20s, except me. And I was in my early 40s at that point. This was 10 years ago, actually. So rather than stand in this line, I just walked up to the front and I asked the person who's doing the IDing. I said, can I just go through here? Can you just accept that I'm over 21 and not even bother with this? And they looked at me and said, yeah, go ahead. And this was 10 years ago. And it made sense because, now I think it was actually making sure you were 19 because it's 19 over there in Canada, not 21. But whatever. Like they could look at me and see that I was nowhere near 19. They just said, go on through. Whereas the people in the 20s, they had to stay in line. So there's a certain point where you just look at the person and there's no way that they're underage and you let them through. That was just bizarre there. I don't know, maybe the dealer had an eyesight problem or something. <laughs> I, I, can't, I just can't explain it. I can't explain it. I've tried to think about it. I can't explain it. People have mixed feelings about the Tropicana closing. Some feel sad that it's one of the classic properties of the Las Vegas Strip. And one of the last ones there is from 1957, and it is going away. Of course, you still do have older properties there, like the ones I listed. Those were all there 35 years ago, and some are much older than that, like Caesars. So it's not like it's the very last old-school property. And some of them are still operating under their original names. But still, I guess every time uh, an old-school property goes away, some people feel sad. Some people felt the same way about the Riviera closing. And especially because it's going to be blown up and not just renamed and renovated. But what about the future plans? Remember, they said that they are doing this to bring the A's to that site. And then there's been a lot of talk about how they're going to build a new hotel. While that statement didn't say that, that's been long the plans for that site. But now they're having an issue, and yet they are still going to be closing, and they're going to still be blowing up the hotel. 
which surprises me a bit because you would think that they'd want to make sure everything with the A's move is really happening before they go through with shutting down the hotel and blowing it up. Unless this has already been planned either way, that they're still going to blow it up, even if the A's deal doesn't work out. So apparently, there is a problem with the size of the lot. The lot is not big enough to build a stadium with a retractable roof, which apparently needs more space. So in order to build a stadium with a retractable roof, and that is one where they can either play outdoors or indoors, they have this in Arizona where the Diamondbacks play. Similar weather to Vegas, actually, over there in Phoenix. And in the summer, they close the roof because Phoenix is blazing hot. And in the spring and the fall, they open the roof because it's nice. And that's the same plan in Vegas. The baseball season runs from April to October, so presumably in April early May, they will leave open the roof. In late May, could be open, could be closed. Probably starting in June, they'll close it and leave it closed all the way through August and then reopen it sometime in September and then leave it open in October if the A's somehow ever make the playoffs again. The problem is they just don't have room to build this proposed stadium and this proposed retractable roof. And even if they don't build this hotel on the same lot, they still don't have room for it. And apparently the only way around this problem is to build the stadium higher. If they make it taller and skinnier, then they will have enough room. Because the problem is the space of the lot. So if they made the whole thing skinnier, then they will have more space to have this retractable roof. The problem is that it can't be any taller because it's too close to the airport. So they have a restriction. They cannot make it any higher than a, a certain height that is required by the uh, FAA, and there's no way to violate that. They had the same problem in Los Angeles, actually more accurately Inglewood, for SoFi Stadium, where the Rams currently play. And what they ended up doing was building most of it underground, because they could not build the stadium high enough because it was too close to LAX. It was very expensive, but they dug underground, and that's why if you go to SoFi Stadium, you will be going down to most of the seats there. You'll be entering ground level and actually going down. And that was not a natural feature of the land. They actually had to dig. They have not discussed digging on this site. In fact, they may not have the money to do this. But they definitely can't build up because it will make it too tall. So that's a big problem. And they can't build it without a retractable roof because it's just too damn hot in the summer in Vegas. And it doesn't cool down at night. So they're kind of stuck there. And now the A's are starting to wonder if they want to come at all. Now, you may think, well, they could just move sites. They could just end up not moving to this Tropicana site, maybe pick something else, like what they were talking about near the Rio. No, because the bill that was passed allowing the stadium to be built, SB1, was passed specifically for the Tropicana site. So if they were to try to go elsewhere, then this would have to go through the process all over again, and there would have to be an amendment to that legislation. Furthermore, there are some concerns that neither the athletics 
nor the Bally Corporation has the money to fund this new stadium. So there just may not be enough money to build this whole thing. So this whole thing may fall apart. And now there's some pitches being made for the A's to move elsewhere. There's even billboards up in Salt Lake City trying to entice the A's to consider that city for a site to move to. And by the way, Salt Lake City would not need a retractable roof. Salt Lake City is pretty high up. And the weather in Salt Lake between April and October is actually pretty nice. It can be a little bit cold in April. I was there in April once and it actually snowed. But it's a lot warmer than many other Major League Baseball cities. And for the most part in those months, from April to October, it's pretty nice there. Starts to get a little cool in October and a little bit cool in April, but May through September are very nice in Salt Lake City. It's not the biggest market, but it's basically got the same issue that the Las Vegas market has, and that there's not a lot of outlying areas for fandom. But a Salt Lake City team may not be that bad of an idea, because they will get some additional fans, maybe from northern Nevada and Idaho and Montana. Now, some of these fans are right now fans of the Colorado Rockies, but Denver isn't that close to a lot of these places, and they may choose to be fans of a Salt Lake team instead. And definitely the entire state of Utah will probably be the will be fans of a Salt Lake team. Now, Utah only has 3.3 million people. So as I said, it's not a huge market, but that is a reasonable alternative, and basketball does pretty well there in Salt Lake. That's why the Utah Jazz have succeeded for quite some time. There's a lot of fan support for the Jazz. So that's being considered now, and it's possibly going to be the Salt Lake City A's or some other A's. There's other cities that don't have a baseball team that also could be considered. Could be something like Oklahoma City or Nashville or Memphis. I'm just throwing out possible cities that don't have a Major League Baseball team that could. In fact, you could even move one back to uh, Montreal. There's some desire to have a team back in Montreal or even one in Vancouver where there never has been a team. So there's Canadian locations as well that are possible. So it's not a done deal. It's not a sure thing that this A's deal is going to happen. This A's move to the Tropicana site. I don't know what they're going to do about the situation with the retractable roof. This isn't something they can just snap their fingers and change. Someone on Poker Fraud Alert, that poster who goes by gut, he posted the saga should really end with Fisher, the owner of the A's, owning a homeless team. And he's hoping for that because he doesn't like the owner, Fisher. Well, you know, that is possible because they pretty much are going to run out of time in Oakland. I don't think they're going to stay there, even if this doesn't work out. So it is possible they will be a homeless team after 2024. They just may have no home. So what will happen to the A's at that point? Well, it may not be as bad as you think. They're not going to be playing on a Little League field somewhere. There are a number of places that have minor league stadiums that could temporarily house the A's while they are trying to get something together. Or they could even play in a converted football stadium and do a workaround that way. 
what it might end up like could be the situation with the Oklahoma City Thunder. This is an interesting story, in case you either don't know it or don't remember it. So let's go back to 2005. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina decimated New Orleans. The levees broke, and that caused massive water to flow into the city, which is below sea level, and massively flooded the city, causing just tremendous damage. I'm sure you guys all remember this. It's funny, because that's not what the fear was with Katrina. My prediction of Katrina, and people still like to make fun of me to this day, who remember on the forums, where I said that I don't think it's going to be a huge deal. I don't think it's going to make landfall as a Category 5. I think it's going to hit land and, and die down. Well, you know what? I was correct about that part, the last part. But what I didn't think about, and what really most people didn't think about, was the levees. So it was a major, major hurricane, but... It did kind of die down once it got to land, but people didn't think about the levees bursting. So the levees burst, and that's what caused all the damage. So it was extremely damaging as feared, just not in the way they thought it was going to happen. But getting back to the point I'm trying to make here, the New Orleans Hornets had nowhere to play because their stadium was destroyed. So... The New Orleans Hornets were homeless due to Hurricane Katrina, and they had to play somewhere. So they temporarily relocated to Oklahoma City, which was not really considered a coveted location for teams to move to. When teams would discuss moving, they weren't saying, oh, yeah, let's go to Oklahoma City. That really wasn't discussed, and Oklahoma City did not have any major sports teams at the time. The Oklahoma City Thunder did not exist yet. So Oklahoma City was really not something that was considered to be a viable place to move for a major sports team. But this was something done in an emergency. They had to find somewhere that was relatively in the area of New Orleans and something that didn't already have a basketball team and something that had a big enough uh, arena where they could play. So Oklahoma City was chosen. Well, boy, were they popular there. People in Oklahoma City loved having an NBA team there. Did way better than expected. Far more fan support than expected. And these weren't necessarily all New Orleans Hornets fans. People just loved having an NBA team in that city. They loved having a professional major sports team in their city. So... It was a tremendous success, even though this was not something done intentionally. It was done because of the hurricane. So once the New Orleans Hornets were able to go home, they did, and they still exist, and they are the New Orleans Hornets. They're not the Oklahoma City Hornets. So what does this have to do with Oklahoma City and teams that are homeless? Well, the Seattle Supersonics wanted to move. And after seeing what happened with the Hornets doing so well in Oklahoma City, they said, hey... Why don't we go there? They really want a team in Oklahoma City, and they temporarily had one, but they knew the Hornets were leaving, and they left. They're back to New Orleans, so they're back to having no team. So if basketball's so popular there, let's just move there. And they did. So in the 2008-2009 season, the Seattle Supersonics became the Oklahoma City Thunder, and they moved there. And they've been there ever since, and it's been a successful franchise. It was a successful move. 
So it's possible that the A's could end up taking up temporary residence somewhere in 2025 when they're homeless, and they might end up being embraced in a similar fashion. And this can especially happen if the city they move to is one that does not have any other major professional sports, just like was the situation in Oklahoma City in 2005. Now, one possible problem here would be the quality of the A's team, which is very low. They're a terrible team. They have a very low payroll. It's almost like a minor league team. So every year they're getting stomped on now. So until they start spending some money on getting some major league caliber players, they're going to be an awful team that loses more than 100 games every year, and maybe even 110 or 120. And it's going to be hard for people to want to embrace them in a new city if they're just horrible. They don't have to be like a first place team, but they've got to be at least okay. They can't be the worst team in baseball. So provided the A's get better, at least somewhat, and they go to a place, even temporarily, that has no existing major sports, they could be embraced there. That's a possibility, too. By the way, there is some discussion, according to Sanilmar of Poker Fraud Alert, that Salt Lake City could get an NHL team, a hockey team. I hadn't heard about that, but that would be possibly successful there as well. So I don't know. I don't know if the Las Vegas A's are going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be in the Tropicana site. I don't know if they're going to try to get the law changed to where they can move elsewhere. I don't know if they're just going to go to Salt Lake City or somewhere else. Maybe even Oklahoma City. You never know. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime or call me anytime. Here's some texts we've received from the 905... Chad Brown was one of the nice poker guys lost too early. Yeah, he was. That was in reference to the Perry Friedman segment. Chad Brown also passed away from cancer, also in his 50s. And just like Perry Friedman, he was a nice guy who had a good reputation. I played some with Chad Brown in the 2000s at Commerce, and he was a very nice guy. Like, even when he would lose, he would just perpetually be in a good mood. I was impressed. Like <laughs> I wouldn't be in a mood like that when I would lose, but he would. He was just one of those guys who just was always friendly, always seemed happy. I'm sure inside he wasn't happy to be losing, but some people can hide it well. Some people can put on a happy face. I can't. I, I don't get to be a dick to anybody. I don't ever yell at the dealer. I don't ever abuse people, but people can tell I'm unhappy when I'm losing. People can tell I'm frustrated. I try not to tilt, I try not to play badly when I'm losing. I'm sure I play better when I'm not losing, but I try not to tilt too badly, and I, I don't ever abuse the dealer for dealing me bad cards. And that, that's very stupid. And I don't abuse other players. But you know, people can tell my mood isn't the best when I'm losing. But some people like Chad Brown, they just could maintain a happy face the whole time and just still be very nice and jovial. That's tough to do. But that was unfortunate what happened to him. Everybody liked him, and they even gave him an honorary bracelet shortly before he died, because he never got a bracelet. Which is very, very well liked in the poker community. And yeah, another example of a nice guy in poker who we lost early in their 50s from cancer. He died of sarcoma, another cancer that is not well understood, has a very high kill rate, and the cause for it is not known does have some things in common with pancreatic cancer. So sarcoma is not a good one to get. I had a relative who passed away of sarcoma. 
So I, I got to watch it. It was pretty bad. We're going to talk now about Phenom Poker. If you want to see my written analysis of Phenom Poker, you can go to the Poker Community Discussion subforum on Poker Fraud Alert. Before I get into the whole Phenom Poker thing, I do want to briefly mention that the Poker Fraud Alert forum has several very distinct sections to it. The most utilized section of the forum is called Flying Stupidity. That's the most active by far. But that's kind of like a free speech, just everybody bullshitting around about general topic portion of the forum. And a lot of the people there were original, never win poker, or donk down members that moved over here. And there's trolling in there, there's even trolling of me in there, so it's not always that newbie friendly over there. That's the most active part of the site, but it's not always the most newbie friendly over there. And if you try to talk about poker there, a lot of times you kind of get laughed off. But that doesn't mean you can't talk about poker on the site, because the scam, scandals, and shadiness portion of the forum, that's where you would bring up scams or anything else that's going on in poker that isn't above the level that you want to bring up, report, discuss, whatever. And I don't allow any trolling in there. So if anyone tries that there, I throw them out of the thread and I delete the message. So it's a very different tone over there. And then another very different subforum is the Poker Community Discussion Forum, where just any serious topic having to do with the poker community is discussed over there. That isn't necessarily about scams or anything, but just about things that are poker-related, sometimes poker strategies, sometimes just general stories in poker. And I'll make posts like that over there, as will some other people. I, I do provide a lot of that content myself. You'll see a lot of posts from me. But an example of one that I made recently was about Hustler closing all these safe deposit boxes on December 31st. And we covered that on the show recently, but that's like the top of, type of topic you see there. It's not a scam, but it's also a serious topic about poker that I wanted to bring up. And the discussion of Phil Galfon's old poker sites up there. So all that type of stuff is in the poker community discussion forum. There's also no trolling allowed in that section of the forum. So you may want to check that out as well. So that's where I posted my analysis of the new proposed site called Phenom Poker, which doesn't exist. So don't go try to play Phenom Poker because you won't find it. But that's where I posted my analysis of Phenom Poker. So even if the flying stupidity section is not your thing, then you may want to check out the other sections. So let's talk about Phenom Poker and what the plans are with it. Every once in a while, a new poker site or app pops up and is promoted as the next potential great thing by those who are starting it. And rarely does it happen that these things become notable or big or even a major player in the community. The last one I remember that was announced that actually did become very big was GG Poker. But pretty much everything else that we see announced either never launches or launches and gets basically nobody playing and quietly goes away. Crypto-related poker sites have sprung up over the years, and none of them have ever risen to become large. Some of them are still around. In fact, there was someone I used to do a radio show with, not on Poker Fraud Alert, but on another site that was and might still be involved with Bitcoin Poker. And that site still exists, but 
it was never huge, even at its peak. These are always niche sites for people who like and understand crypto very well that like playing in that kind of environment. But the average person does not play on those sites if they look for a poker site to play. These crypto sites will never be big. So it's not even the quality of the crypto site. It's just the crypto site is just never going to do well if it's crypto only. Some of these just never get going. Some of these attempt to get started and just never get going. In general, it's good to avoid these. Anyway, there's a new crypto-related poker site that has been announced but is not open yet called Phenom Poker. And the reason a lot of people have taken notice of it is because they've already hired eight poker pros who represent the site as ambassadors. And these people were announcing Finim Poker on their Twitter. And the people they brought in, for the most part, are ones with good reputations. There's some with some mild controversies behind them, which I'll explain as I list them all. But some of them have very good reputations. So here's the list. Joseph Chiang, Ari Engel, who listens to this show. He has a very good reputation. Brian Rast, Sergio Aido, Eric Baldwin, Chris Hunichin, Justin Young, and Angela Jordison. So this is kind of a mixed bag of poker pros. I've heard of all of them except for Sergio Aido, so I can't comment on Sergio at all. Joseph Chiang has a good reputation. Haven't really heard anything bad about him. And in my interactions with him, he's always been pleasant. He's a good player. You know, nothing bad to say about Joseph Chiang. Angela Jordison, she has a good reputation. Ari Engel, he's been around for a long time. He's an itinerant tournament pro who actually has no home. He technically is homeless, but not like the type of homeless person you'd think of. He's just someone who goes around the tournament trail so much that he does not maintain a permanent residence. And he's obviously a very good player and has a lot of accomplishments in poker. Ari Engel is someone who I don't think I've ever seen promote any poker site before. So this is surprising to see him on the list. Brian Rast, who is known to associate himself with some fail projects. I don't even think like on purpose. Like I don't think he's doing it to join fail projects because he has no scruples or anything. I just think he, I just think he's easily talked into it. I think he's just one of these guys that'll stamp his name on anything without vetting it too much, which isn't good, but I don't think it's malicious in any way. I think he's just a little too careless with that. But as far as Brian Rass's reputation, uh, people like him. He's known as a nice guy. He has a lot of success in poker. In general, he's well-regarded. Eric Baldwin is the most controversial of this group, but this goes back a number of years. He signed with UB after the super user scandal, you know, similar to what Joe Seabock did. And a lot of people criticized him for that because it was the same cheating owners that pretended they weren't the owners anymore, and, and he stayed on until it actually closed. He didn't get as much shit as Joe Seabock did, but he did get some shit for it, and he definitely should not have signed with them when all signs pointed to it being the same cheating owners pretending like it was new owners. Now, this was a long time ago. This was back in 09 through 11, but still he did that. Chris Unichin we've talked about on this show in recent times, he had a good reputation, but he ran into a fair amount of Twitter controversy this summer because he ran a GoFundMe for his father's funeral 
despite being a very high-stakes tournament player and despite having a fairly lavish lifestyle. So people said, why are you running a GoFundMe for your dad's funeral? Why don't you just pay for it yourself? And, you know, there's a whole discussion at the time on Twitter. It wasn't a scam or anything. I mean, his dad really did pass away. And his family, other than him, really doesn't have much money. So that part was all true. And the money really was going to go towards the funeral and towards the other things for the family. But people did have a good point. You know, you're playing these high rollers and you're living in an expensive house and you're having these expensive parties. And, like, why are you running a GoFundMe at all for your dad? You should just pay for it yourself. And, you know, we've talked about this whole thing before. This was not a scam. So I want you guys to understand this was not him scamming anybody. But it was bad optics is what it was. And I had some discussions with this with him about this, like, directly. And I was trying to tell him, like, I don't think you're scamming at all. I think this is just not good optics. And, you know, he didn't agree with me. It was a polite discussion. He just didn't completely agree with me, but whatever. So it wasn't a huge scandal or anything, but it did change some people's opinions of him for the worse when that whole thing happened last year. Justin Young, I don't know much about him. I've heard his name. I know he is a poker pro who's been around a while. Haven't heard anything bad about him, but I don't know much about him, so I won't comment about him. So those are the eight ambassadors they signed. So there's nobody on that list that's like really awful. The most controversial of the group was Eric Baldwin, but that controversy goes back to the late 2000s, early 2010s, and you know, everybody else pretty solid for the most part. So these people all tweeted out how they were excited to be part of the Venom poker team, and they really look forward to it, and it's great that the community finally has a place to play safe online poker, blah, blah, blah. So they were all heralding it as something badly needed for the community, that finally we're going to have a poker site that is by the players, for the players, and completely safe. But how's that possible? How can a crypto poker site be all of that? And is it really a game changer? So I was interested enough in the whole thing to look into it. I was wondering, is this something that is really any different? Is this really going to be safer? What's the mechanism behind all this? So I wanted to find out, and I decided I'm going to post a review of their plans. I can't post a review of the site because it's not done yet. You can't play on there. You can't even look at it. They do have a website called phenompoker.com. P-H-E-N-O-M-P-O-K-E-R.com. Phenompoker.com. So I'm going to read you their first blog about this, and then we're going to discuss it. The poker revolution is coming. Introducing Phenom Poker. The game of poker is a beautiful thing. A mix of skill and luck, math and psychology, recreational and professional, a casual social gathering or prestigious tournament for prizes in the tens of millions of dollars. Take your pick. There's something for everyone. It's no wonder why it's one of the most popular games in the world. Yet considering there is a player base somewhere in the hundreds of millions of people globally, there has been little advancement in the industry since online poker burst onto the scene 25 years ago. Little has been done to rethink and advance an industry that has been riddled with scandals and schemes that have seen players' funds frozen or outright stolen by operators and competing players alike. 
In the United States, where the game is most popular, players are faced with limited options, nearly all of which involve trusting your money with some offshore operator in hopes that they won't be the next nefarious operator and domino to fall. It is time for a change. A new type of poker site is coming. We are building Phantom Poker for a simple reason. As poker players and longtime members of the poker community ourselves, we want to solve some of the biggest problems in, the online, po- in online poker and return value back to the poker community. Phantom Poker is a decentralized online poker site that is built by the players for the players and owned and governed by the player community. Built with a trustless gaming architecture, and by the way, I'll explain what that means. You don't have to know what that means right now. It is not necessary to deposit funds with a third party or ask permission when it's time to retrieve your funds. Rather, a player can simply connect the Web3 wallet of their choice to play the game of their choice. While in play, funds are held in a smart contract, which I'll explain shortly, until the player is finished playing, at which point the funds are immediately returned to the player's wallet after accounting for any winnings or losses. This groundbreaking concept eliminates the need to trust an offshore company with your funds and also removes one of the largest bottlenecks in online poker, deposits and withdrawals. Also, by removing the need for traditional payment rails like banks or traditional financial institutions, Phantom Poker will not violate any U.S. federal laws. I will definitely tell you about that when we get to the analysis. Fair gameplay and player protection. Some of the biggest issues plaguing online poker today include RTAs, meaning real-time assistance, bots, and collusion. While we recognize that some of the sites have made efforts to combat these problems, it simply has not been enough. The end result is players getting cheated out of millions of dollars, and nobody is clear on where is a safe place to play. It's unacceptable. This is among our biggest priorities in building a new site, figuring out how to take a truly technology-first approach to solving these issues and having zero-tolerance policies in place when a bad actor behavior is discovered. I'll get to that as well. If we expect the game we love to thrive and grow... There is simply no room to allow those who seek to cheat and scam players out of their money. We will take a proactive approach to solving these issues and use the latest in machine learning and other technologies to identify bad actors quickly and give the community a a level playing field to battle on the digital felt. Venom Poker also uses a P2P encrypted RNG, meaning random number generator engine for card shuffling, This approach removes the possibility of anyone getting real-time whole card access, including developers or site admins. We believe this should have been the standard across all sites a long time ago. The technology has been available, and yet we continue to see super-user scandals pop up in the industry. Phantom Poker will always make use of the most sophisticated available technologies to protect our player community and prevent these scenarios. And it gets even better. At Phantom Poker, every poker player is an owner. Phantom Poker is a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, also known as a DAO, D-A-O, and is owned and governed through the Phenom Token. Phenom Tokens are distributed to players as a reward for playing poker on the site. That's right, you can own a piece of the site simply for playing the game you love. Token holders will collectively receive 50% of the site revenues and also hold voting rights that control the future of the site. The other half of site revenues will be used to operate and grow the platform. This amount can be adjusted over time via a governance proposal that is voted on and passed by token holders. Our goal is to be 100% owned by the poker community and to be the most player-centric offering on the market. Okay, that's the statement. lot to dig into here. Let's start with the most important thing. They're claiming that it's going to be legal. They wrote also by removing the need for traditional payment rails like banks, 
Phantom Poker will not violate any U.S. player laws. Do you think that is true? Do you think that you can play on Phantom Poker as they described and that it's completely legal to play? Well, for you to play, it's legal. You're not going to get any trouble. But for them to offer to you, is it a legal site? No. No. They're wrong. Big mistake there to say that. They are focusing on the wrong thing. They're claiming that because banks and traditional financial institutions are not involved in the deposits and withdrawals, and because there is no deposit and withdrawal, because you're just putting your own crypto kind of on hold and playing against somebody else who did the same thing, and then it's kind of settled up at the end, and there's no depositing or withdrawing or using any banks or credit cards or anything like that, that therefore it's legal. And they're basing this upon the way they busted sites on Black Friday in 2011 by going after the financial transactions, the depositing and withdrawing, mainly the depositing. So the government was prosecuting them on the basis that they were taking money that was then used to gamble on these sites illegally, not so much the gambling itself. And that was just because that was the easier way to do it from a legal standpoint. It's not that the gambling was legal. It's that it was much easier to establish the illegality and to prosecute and to seize based upon the much clearer violation of taking these deposits for gambling. But somehow Phenom Poker twisted that around in their heads, and they came to believe that as long as you take the traditional deposits and withdrawals out of the mix, and people aren't using banks or credit cards anymore, all of a sudden it becomes legal. No, it does not. Any form of unregulated poker operating in the U.S., which this would be, it's not going to be regulated by any U.S. government agency, so any form of unregulated poker operating in the U.S., whether live or online, is illegal if it takes a rake. Period. No way around that. You cannot run a raked game in the U.S., live or online, unless you have a license to do so. And if you don't have that license, it's illegal in all 50 states. It is irrelevant what types of deposits or withdrawals are made, whether it's crypto or fiat currency used. It doesn't matter. Now, if they did this but did not take any rake, then they could possibly make an argument that it is legal, that it's like a home game. It's still not clear because it's online. But at least they'd have somewhat of a path to claim that because they're not taking any money out of the pot. It's just people playing each other for money where the house gets none of it. And it's 100% goes back to the players. But that's not what's going on here. They're not saying they're not taking rake. They are going to take rake. It's a business. So they're going to take rake and therefore it becomes illegal. Gambling has three elements according to U.S. law. Chance, consideration, and reward. Chance means there's some sort of element of chance, which of course in poker there is. Consideration means you're putting up a risk. You're putting up something to possibly lose. And reward means you can win something. So if there's chance, consideration, and reward, it is considered gambling in the U.S. 
And the only way that gambling is okay, as far as poker is concerned, is if there's no rake. And the reason they allow that, and I'm not talking about online, I'm talking about live, is so home games don't get in trouble. So you can run a home game for you and your friends and don't have to worry about the police kicking down the door and arresting everybody. Because a home game with no rake is just friends playing with each other. And that does not need any kind of license. But they're going to take a rake. And it's online. So this is not legal. Now, you're not going to get in trouble playing there, but it's wrong to claim this is going to be a legally operating site. It's not, if it runs in the U.S., which is what they're planning to do. Then there's the whole token thing. Now, some people reacted very negatively to the token, saying there's no point to have these tokens. And in fact, this looks very scammy. This looks like one of these many scammy tokens out there that we've seen in the crypto and NFT space. We've seen a lot of this over the last four years or so. And most of these have ended up with what's known as a rug pull, where those who started the whole thing uh, basically pump it up and then sell it at the peak value and then run off. So people are saying the whole token thing is making it look scammy. Now, I don't agree with that part because as they kept responding to people, and accurately for the most part, the token doesn't have to do with the money that's being wagered. The token has to do only with ownership of the site. So it is true they don't need it. They could just do without the whole token thing, but the token just something that is added on there for free, that you're not risking, you're not investing into. They're basically just saying, we give you a token as you play. We give you more and more tokens as you play. The more active you are, the more tokens you get. And these tokens signify ownership in the company and allow you voting voting rights, and I guess also a piece of the profits, as you own more of the company. So it's a zero-risk proposition. It's pretty much a free roll that they're just going to give this to you for being active there. It's not like you're buying these tokens. So that's the point they're trying to make. Now, I mostly agree with that, though there could be a secondary market on these tokens, which would complicate it. But let's just assume there's not going to be. And it really is just something they're giving out to signify ownership. Well, first of all, this is not something unique. You might think it's unique. You might say, oh, cool, this is a pretty good idea. This is unique. It's cool that they thought of that. No, they may believe they thought of that, but it's been done before. Have any of you heard of Poker Share? If you weren't around in the mid-2000s in online poker, you probably haven't heard of it. Poker Share was actually a UB skin. It actually directly connected to the UB games, except it was a different site. It was called Poker Share. It was a skin into UB. And that was their whole gimmick. It was called Poker Share because you would, quote, become an owner as you played on there. And they did the same thing. It didn't involve tokens, but they would give you some very small percentage ownership of the site as you played on there. Very similar to this. They gave it to you for free. And that was the gimmick to get you over there. Instead of playing on UB, it's like playing on UB, except you also become an owner of this skin slowly. The more you play, the more of an owner you become. I never believed this. It seemed like bullshit to me. There was nothing tangible you could get for your ownership. It was kind of a thing that down the road is going to mean something. I thought this was just a silly gimmick to get people to play over there. And that's exactly what it was. And Poker Share didn't last very long, eventually went down. They eventually just folded into UB. Nobody lost their money because UB was managing the money. 
And this is before UB stole all the money. They were cheating people at the same time, but we didn't know that then. So poker share closing didn't screw anybody, but you also didn't ever get anything out of your ownership. Your ownership ended up meaning absolutely nothing. So this was tried before, and nobody was very excited about it. No one really felt they were owners of poker share, except for the real owners. I was even very skeptical about this at the time when they were promoting this, and indeed the ownership ended up being meaningless. Jason Moe did a long analysis of Phantom Poker during like a Q&A session that he did on a video. Jason Moe is a former poker pro who became a big crypto guy, and I think he's made a ton of money in crypto, and a lot of people respect his opinions on crypto. And Jason did like a 15-minute rant about Phantom, and it was fairly technical, so I'm not going to play it on here because a lot of you would find it boring because you just don't know the technology that well. I'm not saying this to be condescending or anything. I'm just saying you, you have to have some basic knowledge of crypto and how it works and all the terms to really appreciate everything Jason was saying. And he did stop to explain some things, but he doesn't like go into really detailed explanations, so it wouldn't make for good radio here for a listener base that isn't super crypto literate for the most part. I know some people are here, but a lot of you aren't. So I'm not going to play it. But he did raise some good points in his little 15-minute rant on it. I actually learned some things from what he was talking about. I enjoyed it a lot. You can find it on the thread on the Poker Community Discussion Forum. I posted it up there. But he did bring up a point about the token ownership that I hadn't thought of. Remember, they said they're going to give away 50% of the tokens total to the players to where the ultimate goal is for it to be 50% owned by the players and that everybody's going to get a vote on the direction of the site, that everybody will be a voting owner. He brought up the fact that this is meaningless because since they retain the other 50%, if they all vote the same way on anything then they're the decision makers. Because there's no way that out of all the token owners on the whole site, that they won't get one person with a tiny share voting their same way. It's pretty much guaranteed if you have, what, like, say, thousands or tens of thousands of owners. So all you need is one person out of, say, like 10,000 owners that they gave these tokens to, to vote the same way as the actual owners who retain 50%, and then they will have 50% plus one, which means they win. So that makes every vote meaningless. It's just a fake vote, so everybody can feel like they have a part in the decision-making, but if everybody who has that 50%, that first 50%, the real owners, if they all go the same way, which I assume they would, anything they put to a vote, they'd probably all vote the same way, then they're basically guaranteed for their decision to always be the one that ends up getting taken. So that was Jason Moe's point. I hadn't even thought of that. But that's a great point. That shows you what a gimmick this whole thing is. Now I know they're claiming that they'll also distribute profits, that half of the profits then will go to the token holders, but you know, I believe that when I see it. It's also kind of a free roll for them. Because if they're doing well and making a profit, and if it's this gimmick people bringing people in, then yeah, they can kick some of the profits back to people if that's one of the big factors bringing people over there. And if they don't make money, well, then there's nothing to give. 
So it's one of these things that they're willing to give up some future profits in order for profits to exist in the first place. That's basically what they're doing. It's actually not that different than just giving rake back, if you think about it. It's better for them, because it would be like, we'll give you rake back if we make money. If we don't make money, we won't give you rake back. And if we do make money, we'll give you rake back. That's kind of what that's like. Not exactly, but it's along those lines. So the whole thing about you being an owner, it's just a dumb gimmick. It doesn't really mean anything. Now, there's one other thing I'm concerned about involving the tokens, and that is they might very well violate U.S. securities law. Because you can't just sell shares to a company in the U.S. Just, you can't just decide to do it without violating securities laws. So this would be something illegal to do, I believe. And even though they're not directly selling these shares, they're just giving them away, it is connected to real money play on the site that they are raking. So that could be deemed equivalent. It could be deemed like that you are buying these shares in a way by doing business with them. And I do believe that would trigger a securities violation. So that's yet another thing that could be a problem down the line if they become successful. I posted this on Twitter and someone said, yes, this is a violation of U.S. securities law. I don't know if this is an expert of it, but someone was pretty sure that it is when I brought it up. And I I think that is probably true. You're not going to get in any trouble for this. Again, it'd be them getting in trouble. I'm just saying this is not as above board with the law as you think. It's not legal to operate as a real money gambling site for them. And it is not legal in most cases, I would believe, to give out these tokens which signify ownership that you get as a result of playing there. Now, what about this trustless claim? Now, in crypto, trustless means that there's no top-level authority figure or entity in charge, and the network is operated by an entire community of users, so therefore there's not any one person or entity you need to trust that basically The entire system is something that doesn't require anyone to trust each other. Bitcoin, for example, is something that's mostly trustless. I won't get into the reasons it's not completely trustless, but it's mostly trustless. And if you think about it, when you send Bitcoin to another person, you don't have to worry about the head of Bitcoin, who doesn't exist, swooping in and possibly interfering in it. No one's going to stop the transaction. No one's going to steal the money on the way. Nothing like that. Nobody has to approve it. It's just, uh, it's the entire community, the entire Bitcoin community that is processing the transactions. And therefore, you don't have to trust anyone involved. It's a whole network that operates under a specific set of rules. So basically, if you send Bitcoin to another address, you can be assured it's going to get there and that nobody can or will interfere with it. So it's mostly trustless Bitcoin. That's an example of something trustless, where sending money to someone else in any other way that's not through crypto, that does require some trust. Especially if you were to send this through a third party. Like, let's say you were to send money to me to give to somebody else. Well, you would have to trust me that I'm not going to run off with it. So that is not a trustless system. And even using banks is not a trustless system 
because you are depositing the money into the bank and then you have to trust the bank that they're going to send it and that they're not going to mess something up. A big bank wouldn't be likely to steal it from you. But number one, they could just refuse to do it. And number two, if they did something wrong, then something could go wrong. So that is not a trustless system. Phenom Poker is claiming that they are trustless. And they're saying that's what really separates them from the other poker sites, where you have to trust these offshore unregulated sites to pay you when you try to withdraw your balance. And sometimes they don't. Look what happened with Lock Poker. Look what happened with Full Tilt. They're saying, we're not going to have this problem. It's a trustless system where you're always going to have control of your own funds. You don't have to ask us to send you the money. So how are they going to do this? Well, they're going to do this using something called smart contracts. A smart contract is a protocol on a blockchain which executes upon meeting certain criteria. And this happens automatically without a human being or any kind of outside system having to make decisions whether that's been met. So basically, smart contracts are important because they can't be violated. The criteria that makes them execute is already set and it automatically completes when that criteria is met. So with Phenom Poker, the smart contract will take whatever crypto that you want to use when you go sit down at a table. So you say, I want to sit down with $1,000 at the table and I'm going to do it with Ethereum. So then the, the smart contract would be set to take $1,000 worth of Ethereum out of your Ethereum wallet to hold it and to then give you back your $1,000 in Ethereum when you leave the table, plus or minus whatever you won or lost. You don't have to trust Phenom Poker to hold your money other than while you're at the table. And you don't even have to trust them to pay you out properly with the winnings and losses. You're going to sit at the table and the smart contract is going to automatically manage the money it's holding for you and it's automatically giving you that money back when you leave the table plus and minus whatever you win or lose. So that's how they claim to be trustless. Now, I agree from a financial standpoint, they actually are. It is true that when you're playing on Phantom Poker, you will always get paid your winnings and you'll get paid immediately when you leave the table. So if you sit down with $1,000 and buy in with Ethereum and you win 500 and you stand up from the table, you will immediately get back 1500 in Ethereum for a $500 profit. And you won't have to ask for your money. You won't have to withdraw anything. You'll just have it right then. That's true. And from that standpoint, they really are trustless. However, that does not mean the entire system is trustless because they're still providing the games. They're still providing the security. They're ultimately the arbiters of who is cheating and who is not and who is going to get banned and who does not get banned. So that's not totally trustless. The depositing and withdrawals are trustless. The handling of the money is trustless, but the game itself is not. And that leads me to my next point, which is a huge point. This is my biggest problem with Phantom Poker, and nobody can answer how this is not a huge problem. There is a huge problem security-wise, which is brought on by the whole entire trustless smart contract matter. Since you control your own funds, meaning they're never holding a balance for you, you're sitting at the table, 
It's holding crypto temporarily that you buy in with. And then when you get up, it gives it back to you. So they're never holding a balance for you. That may seem good because you'll always get paid. But on the other side of it, they can't punish anybody for cheating. There is no money for them to seize if they catch cheaters. And this makes it a virtual free roll to cheat on the site. And if it's easy to make new accounts there, which I have a feeling it's going to be, then it's a free roll to cheat there. Because they're never holding up any funds of yours. Even today, on traditional poker sites, cheaters have one thing to worry about, and that's getting caught before they can withdraw. And since it takes money to make money, even if you're cheating, you have to deposit first, risk your own money, and then if you're cheating, get that money off before they catch you. But if they catch you before you withdraw, you've actually lost money. Because you not only lose what you won, you lose what you deposited. So if you're caught cheating on any site, they're going to keep everything. Not just what you won, but also what you put on there. Anything they can keep, they will. So that's the risk you take as a cheater on a traditional poker site. And that is something that makes it tougher on potential cheaters that they have to deposit money to any account that they want to cheat with. It's not a free roll. They have a chance to lose out when they're cheating if they get caught too quickly. Well, on Phenom Poker, according to their plans, that's not true. On Phenom Poker, they are never holding a penny. They can't take money from you because the only time that they are holding your money is through these smart contracts that are automatically set to give your money back as soon as you stand up from the table. And even if you want to say, well, maybe they could have it written into the smart contract to where they have the authority to put a stop to it if they catch you in the act of cheating while you're still at the table which I don't even know if it's possible with the way the whole thing's set up. But even if it is, most of the time they catch cheaters, it's not while they're playing. And even if you catch a cheater while they're playing, they tend not to have their entire bankroll on the table. They'll just put down what they need at the moment. So the rest of the money that a cheater has won is going to be right there in their crypto wallet and totally untouchable. But I don't even think they can seize anything that's presently going on at the table because of these smart contracts and the whole point of it being trustless. So it really looks like they have zero power to discipline cheaters other than just banning them. And if you ban them, then they can come right back. Because I can't imagine they have a very extensive know-your-customer procedure that they're going to require. So people can just keep making fake account after fake account after fake account and sitting down with crypto and cheating. And if they get caught, they get banned, but the money they won will never get taken. So that's a huge, huge hole because it makes it a risk-free proposition for cheaters to make unlimited accounts to cheat with. You might say, well, wait a minute. What about at a live card room? At a live card room, there's no one holding a balance for you. So you go in, you play, and if you cheat and win and you cash out, you have the money too, and the poker room can't reach into your wallet and take it. So how is this any different? Well, it's very different because once that happens, you will be banned. And you can't just become a new person and come back tomorrow. So once you're banned, yeah, that's done. you're done at that particular room. You can't come back. If you try to come back, they will arrest you. But here, there's no such restriction. You can come right back under a different account over and over and over again. So there is no way to punish cheaters. 
And it doesn't look like there's a way to stop tons of multi-accounting. So this is a huge hole in their whole model, and nobody's addressed it yet. So what they're promoting as a good thing, that you control your own money, that's great if you're an honest player, but it also enables cheaters to a tremendous extent. It removes any risk for them. There's another problem, and that is exchanges like Coinbase are never going to let this fly. Regular exchanges do not like being part of gambling. And if they see that you're gambling with crypto that you're sending back and forth to gambling sites from the exchange, they will close your account down. They won't steal your money. You'll be able to withdraw what you have, but you will not be able to use that service anymore. People have had their Coinbase accounts closed many times for that reason. There's a lot of people who complain about Coinbase closing their accounts because they deposit directly to a poker site in play and then withdraw, and then they get the email from Coinbase saying, sorry, we're closing you because you were gambling. So can you imagine on something like Coinbase seeing these transactions over and over and over and over again every time someone sits down at a table that they are sending their crypto through these smart contracts to this gambling site? There's no way Coinbase is going to let this fly. They're going to ban accounts super fast. So then the only people who are going to be able to get around this will be ones who use middleman wallets that do not care about gambling with the crypto. But that introduces a new layer of complexity that people either won't understand or won't want to bother with. So all you're going to have there are people who are very dedicated to playing crypto poker And that's a very small group of people, and most of them are at least decent at poker. So fish are not going to want to deal with all this shit. So for all these reasons, I don't think that Phantom Poker has any chance to succeed. The entire trustless crypto stuff is too complicated for the average player. So even without all these concerns, the average player is going to be very intimidated by this whole process. You have to understand the fish on these poker sites are not typically using crypto. What they're usually doing is depositing with a credit card. But even the ones that learn how to do crypto, it's pretty simple. And a lot of them do eventually get banned for using things like Coinbase, but it takes a little while. But the fish on these sites, they have a number of different deposit methods. And as I said with the crypto, at least it's pretty simple. They just send Bitcoin to such and such address and they've got it. Here they've got to deal with all these contracts and, and accepting smart contracts and you know accepting all this shit that's very scary that they won't understand. And they're not going to like it. So you're really just going to have a very niche group of people that know and understand the theory behind the crypto being used there and are comfortable with it. So that's never going to become big. That's why crypto poker has always been a niche market that will never get bigger than being a niche market. This will never appeal to the masses. Now, one good thing is that it's not likely anyone will get cheated. Since you're in control of your own crypto, this won't be a situation where a crappy site just runs off with your money when they don't succeed. And that's why these eight ambassadors don't have that much to lose by promoting it. I'm sure they were given a sales pitch about how this is groundbreaking and how it's no risk for them to promote because everyone's in charge of their own money, and that this is a new concept in poker that's anti-cheating, anti-shadiness, and they're going to use things like, quote, machine learning to out-cheaters, which I'd, I'd love to see how they do that. As Jason Moe said in his speech about this 
fan and poker situation, he said usually when someone uses the term machine learning, they don't know what they're talking about. They just like to throw out that term, which I, I think is correct. But even if they're great at finding cheaters, that's not going to help because you can't punish them. That's a huge problem, right? Jason Moe also brought up that this is vulnerable to attack, this whole thing. That while they may not be cheating you, users may end up getting cheated. He said this sort of token uses a bridge which is vulnerable to attack, so it's not as secure as people think. And also, there's a lot of spoof-type scams involving these type of smart contracts. Because when a smart contract is set, what you're basically doing is giving it permission to take your crypto as part of the contract. So you've got to accept it. And you, it'll state these terms, you've got to accept it. The problem is, it's hard for most people to understand what they're really accepting. So if this site ever were to succeed, then you could have all these people sending them these fake smart contracts to accept and steal their crypto. So they'll think they're accepting it to play on the site, and in reality, they're getting these fake contracts set to them so that they will just uh, steal their crypto out of their wallet. So he's saying that even though the online poker sites located offshore are not perfect, that it may be better for most people to just trust them rather than to trust all these users to not get scammed with these various pitfalls. Even if Phantom Poker is not trying to scam anybody, that there's ways that these people can be scammed by third parties due to all the complexity and due to these scams being very common in this type of space. So that for the average user, it probably is safer to play on an offshore poker site. And you know what? I think I agree. But really, when it all comes down to it, the two biggest flaws are the inability to punish cheaters and the complexity of the system, which is going to discourage fish from ever playing and discourage it from ever getting big. Now, how do you think these eight ambassadors were compensated? Well, I don't know because I haven't spoken to any of them about it. But my guess is they were given a bunch of these tokens or promised these tokens. So they were probably told, okay, you're going to be this percentage of an owner right off the bat. So if this thing gets off the ground and does well, you could get very rich. And if it doesn't, no skin off your ass, then it's not going to be a scam. It'll just be a site that doesn't work out and you won't lose anything. So all you got to do is promote it a little bit. If it works out great, then we're all going to make a lot of money. And if it doesn't, no one's going to get hurt. I have a feeling that was the pitch. I have a feeling they were pitched tokens. I have a feeling these people were not paid any money up front. The fact that Brian Rast is involved really makes me think that because I believe that's kind of been the way that Brian Rast has gotten involved with other things where someone presents a business idea to him involving poker and they throw a good pitch at him and he doesn't sit there and analyze it too carefully nor does he consult anybody that is more skeptical. So then he kind of goes, yeah, you know, uh, that sounds good. Yeah, Okay, man, let's do it. And then he signs on. And then the place screws people, and then he kind of feels stupid, and then people don't really blame him because it wasn't really him doing it, and that's that. So it does seem like he will sign on with these things if he gets some percentage ownership, basically for stamping his name on there. And as long as he talked into believing it's not shady, then he tends to do it. And there's a number of poker players who are like that. Johnny Chan is notorious for that. Michael Mizraki is notorious for doing that. These are people who are not scamming anybody. They just are not vetting 
these, quote, opportunities enough and stamping their name on too many things. Even Phil Ivey's done this. You always have to be careful what you stamp your name on. Now, again, I don't think anyone's going to get ripped off from this whole thing. I don't think this is a scam site. I just think it's not a very viable idea. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. So if you think this is the solution to all of online poker's current ills, think again. I'd be shocked if this thing succeeds. Clark County has passed a new law that you should know about. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it. On January 2nd, it was announced by Clark County that the board of Clark County commissioners today passed an ordinance that would allow for free movement on the pedestrian walkways to, quote, reduce crime and enhance safety along Las Vegas Boulevard. The pedestrian flow zone ordinance will help to ensure our world-class tourism destination remains a safe place for people to visit and traverse through this ordinance to maintain safe and continuous movement of pedestrian traffic. It is unlawful for any person to stop, stand, or engage in activity that causes another person to stop and stand within any pedestrian flow zone. It is not interpreted to mean that tourists and locals cannot take photos along the boulevard while on a pedestrian bridge, but rather is intended to maintain the safe and continuous movement of pedestrians on the bridges to ensure pedestrian safety on the bridges. The ordinance is narrowly written to accomplish the county's important objective of reducing the incidence and risk of crime and serious safety issues on pedestrian bridges and allow pedestrians to freely and safely get to their desired location. That was a tweet by Clark County on January 2nd. And it was accompanied with people going up and down escalators near MGM Grand. And I kid you not, the picture looks like it was taken in 1996. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> I don't know about that specific year, but you could see the way everyone's dressed. And this was not a modern picture. This is not even like a semi-modern picture. Like this wasn't a taken in like 2010 or something. This was definitely taken a long time ago. Everybody really looks like they're dressed like it's the mid-90s. And this particular style kind of lasted through the early 2000s before changing. So this was taken sometime in the 90s or at latest early 2000s. So that's hilarious that they use that picture. Like they just dug this up. <laughs> it's not even of a bridge. It's actually of an escalator to a bridge. So it's kind of seemed like they're contradicting themselves. They're saying, well, it's not written to stop people from taking pictures along the boulevard while on the bridge, but uh, it's also against the law to stop or stand in these zones or to cause another person to stop or stand in these zones. So which one is it? And who are they really trying to go after here? They claim it's narrowly written to accomplish the objective of reducing the incidence and risk of crime and safety issues. Then who's this being enforced against? And what really is the law? So there were a lot of panicky articles about this that were citing that you really have to be careful now when you're going to Las Vegas, because if you dare stop for a second to snap a picture from one of these pedestrian bridges, that there's going to be someone there to either arrest you or cite you. And that's not true. Now, the pedestrian bridges have been increasing over time on Las Vegas Boulevard, 
because it was found that pedestrians crossing the strip both was a safety risk and also slowing down traffic, that they really just didn't want to have to make traffic wait, which is already a problem on the strip, especially during the weekends, for people to cross, that they should make it as much as possible to where there are not many crosswalks that will actually stop traffic and try to minimize how much exposure tourists have to traffic so people don't drunkenly stumble onto the street and get slammed into on Las Vegas Boulevard. So they started building more and more of these pedestrian bridges, which are mandatory. They actually have walls that are blocking you from getting out onto Las Vegas Boulevard. I mean, you could technically climb over one, but it's not all that simple. And you are basically directed over to these bridges to cross the street. So that's what these pedestrian bridges are. And they've been increasing over time. A concern came in 2023 that people were going to use these bridges, which are considered public spaces, to stand and watch the F1 race for free instead of spending a lot of money on tickets. And that this was going to hurt F1 and hurt the Las Vegas economy. So this was kind of a problem because this is a public space and people are allowed to assemble assemble in public spaces. But at the same time, they don't want these spaces to be used to get a free view of the race that's otherwise very expensive to watch. So they tried to put up opaque coverings of the windows of these pedestrian bridges so people couldn't see through. And that didn't work, but people started tearing them down. So then they had these security guards that were very aggressively chasing people away and telling them that they're just not allowed to be there and telling them they're going to get arrested and they're going to be detained if they don't move on. And a lot of people complained about that during the F1 race. There is kind of a fine line between public safety and right to assemble. So you do have a right to assemble in a public space without being kicked out, even if government officials don't love why you're gathering there. For example, if you were to go to a public park and hold up signs that are protesting the city government, you could actually do that, even though the city wouldn't be thrilled about you being there, and even if the people at the park are just trying to enjoy the park and and don't really want to see this, because it's a public space, you have a right to do that. However, once you start to create a nuisance of yourself, where you start to interfere with other people's movement or other people's safety, then you can't do it anymore. So something I always like to cite that this doesn't get used enough, but they should just immediately remove anyone who blocks roads as a form of protest, which has gotten more and more popular in the last 10 years or so. That should never be allowed. That's not doesn't have to do with all this, but it's along the same lines that anybody who intentionally blocks a road to protest a cause should be removed and arrested. And there should be zero tolerance of this because this restricts people's movement. It's not about free speech. Free speech is about being on the sidewalk and holding up signs for people who pass by on the street. That's fine. But if you're going to block the road where people can't move, you're blocking a thoroughfare, you're blocking people's movement. That is not about speech. That is now about false imprisonment. That is now about inhibiting others' movements. And now you are creating a public safety hazard and you're impeding others' rights. So at that point, you should be arrested, and they don't do it enough. 
they need to start doing that. And that's why the blocking road issues become such a big problem because people realize they can do it and nothing happens to them. So I'm just giving you examples of how there's always this balance between your First Amendment rights and public safety, and sometimes they will intersect one another. We also had this somewhat with COVID. Think about it with COVID, all the restrictions that existed, and it was said to be done for public safety, but then there were others saying that this is preventing people's freedom to assemble. I actually was more on the side of this should not be done, this shouldn't be preventing people's freedom to assemble, but we won't get into that whole discussion. So it's not cut and dried here. It's not, it's not as simple as you might think. So Clark County, inspired by the whole F1 situation that they want to finally put to bed, because F1's coming back, it has a 10-year contract. So they have decided to pass this ordinance. So number one, at the next F1, the one that's this year, there will be zero doubt that they can remove people. So anyone who tries to get a free view of F1 this November will get the unpleasant surprise that they can get cited or arrested for it. Whereas in uh, November of 2023, it wasn't as obvious. So that's one thing that they take care of by passing this law. It's actually an ordinance, not a law, but you know, close enough. And then they accomplish some other goals, which I'll get to in a second. But I do want to announce that we finally have a co-host. Trader Ruski, hello. It's get, getting very early for you. What's happening, Jeff? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I've been up a little bit, but wanted to jump on. What's happening? We're discussing the new ordinance in 2024 in Clark County about how you can't stand on these bridges and how this was inspired by the F1 thing, but it's for other reasons as well. And there were a lot of panicky articles written in publications that are mostly not based in Vegas that were making it sound like that every tourist now is going to get arrested for taking pictures on one of these bridges or stopping for a second to just kind of take in the strip and look down. That's not going to happen. That's not what this is aimed at. And I will tell you what it is aimed at, aside from protecting the precious F1 for the rest of the year when F1 is not going, what they're going to be doing. If you've walked on these bridges anytime recently, you've probably noticed a lot of homeless a lot of people handling, handing out those obnoxious cards with prostitutes on them, people performing and wanting you to tip them if you even stop for a second to look at it, and those BS showgirls that aren't really showgirls and are just dressed like them trying to get you to take pictures of them and then shake you down for a $100 tip. Uh, there's all these different supposed, quote, performers that hang out on these bridges and also homeless people sleeping on them. And also people kind of just, you know, hanging out and doing drugs on them. And it's not good for the city. It's not good for the tourists to have to deal with all this shit. And it does slow down the bridges somewhat to have a homeless guy sleeping in the middle or to have a performer sitting down and blocking some of the way. Because there's a lot of people passing through these bridges and you, you really shouldn't have people sitting down and blocking any part of it. So... The problem is that when they've tried to clamp down on this in the past, they were answered by, well, this is freedom to assembly. This is a public space, and, and uh, we want to perform here. Performance is part of free speech. Street performance is part of free speech. So we're performing here, and you can't remove us. 
So it became a legal battle, and, and for the most part, Clark County just kind of tolerated it. But once they were under pressure by F1 to put an end to this, and after all the controversy when those security guards were chasing people away without really the legal backing to do so, they realized that they had to kill two birds with one stone. So what they've decided to do is technically make it illegal in what they call the pedestrian flow zone, and that is in any place that they feel that the entire space is for motion and that no one can stop and impede it, that if you stop or stand at any point there in this flow zone, or if you do something to make anyone else stop and stand, which I can't see how you could really do if you're not stopping and standing yourself, but let's, let's put that aside, that you have committed a violation. And then the enforcement is where they have the leeway. So they are not going to be there to chase away people taking pictures or stopping for a second to look at the view. That's not what they're going to do, because that would create a lot of bad press for Las Vegas. And that's not what they want. They don't want to scare away tourists. This is the opposite. They're trying to make it more pleasant for tourists. The only thing here that's not about the tourists is the F1 part of it for that brief time that they are doing this to protect F1 as well. But for the rest of the year, this is to protect the tourists from the, number one, the homeless, and number two, the various predators there that are hogging up space on the bridges to try to scam or hustle people. And I support that. I support getting all that shit out of there because I, I hate working, walking all these bridges and, and running into that. And I, I do a lot. I see a lot of this when I walk on the bridges. I expect it. And when I see it, I'm like, oh, no. You know, I, I'm hoping these people don't talk to me. I'm hoping they don't try to expect me to tip them. I'm hoping they don't try to hand me a card. Not that it's the end of the world if any of this happens, but I just want to walk and not be bothered. And I hate that there's just so many of them. So it's good that this is being done away with, and it does seem like the county is serious about only enforcing this upon those who are really creating a nuisance and not going after tourists who just want to stop for a second. So I actually support this. And anything you're hearing about this that it's going to result in your arrest or citation for taking a picture, then that's not true. And that's what Clark County was trying to clarify in that tweet on January 2nd, where they oddly chose a picture from 1996. The, the showgirl thing is really obnoxious, and I always speak out against it. And it's funny, I do get resistance from some people, saying, oh, come on, just let them do it. These girls need to make a living, and these costumes are expensive, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. I don't. It doesn't matter what expense they have to go through to get these costumes, or how tough it is to make a living, blah, 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 blah. The problem is, it's dishonest, and a lot of times it results in threats and intimidation to get what they want. Because these girls will stand there looking very innocent, you know, they're, they're in these showgirl outfits. And by, by the way, they, they're not real showgirls, and in fact, they don't even look like real showgirls. Real showgirls are very model-like. They tend to be tall, they tend to have very traditionally uh, model-like figures, and they tend to be young. These, quote, showgirls on the strip are just like any girl who wants to put on the outfit. Just any average girl who puts on the outfit. They're not always very attractive. But th that doesn't really matter to me. You know, if you want to take a picture with the showgirls, I don't care if they're pretty or not. The problem is they're not upfront about what it's going to cost you. Yeah, people taking a picture with them probably assume they're going to want a tip. 
but they have no idea how much the tip's going to be, and in a lot of cases, the girls want $100. And no one expects that. So they aggressively approach you. Hey, would you like to take a picture? Hey, come, come be with us over here. They, they talk you into taking a picture with them. You take the picture, and then they very aggressively push you to give them $100 total. And if you give anything less than like 60 they really get on you. And then they'll start threatening you. They'll start threatening that their boyfriends are nearby. And they're going to come in and beat it out of you. And if it's females taking the pictures with them, they'll threaten to beat them up themselves. So the girls aren't going to threaten to beat up a guy. It's not a very uh, credible threat. But then they'll say their boyfriends are going to beat up the guy. And they're going to beat up the girls that don't tip them enough. So it's not like you give them a 20 and they're not thrilled, but they accept it. If you give them a 20, they're going to really give you a hard time. They're going to really get on you. They're going to threaten you. And they're going to start shouting at you. They're going to try to embarrass you that you're a cheapskate. Even the ones that don't threaten will try to humiliate you. And that is bad. That's something that's a very bad experience for tourists. And they are basically tricked into a service that's far more expensive than they would believe it is. And then once it's over, they're threatened, intimidated, and humiliated to pay up. Now, if these showgirls all had a sign up there, picture with us $100, picture with us $60, whatever they want to charge, and people want to pay it, then fine. Then that's the free market. Then I wouldn't mind them being there. But the fact that there's no price at all quoted, and then you take a picture, and then you're pressured to pay them as much as $100 and quote a tip for a picture that takes 20 seconds, that's terrible. That shouldn't exist out there. And that's the norm. That's not just a few bad actors. That's the norm. And you know what? When people take these pictures, they don't even understand that most people on social media are very aware that this is just a hustle. So I feel so bad for people on these Vegas Facebook groups that they'll come up and post a picture. Hey, had a great time in Vegas. And then they'll post a picture of themselves on the street with two showgirls. And instead of people saying, oh, cool, what a cool picture, people start mocking them. Huh, that, that set you back $100. Huh? Boy, well, you're gullible. Uh, you got hustled. Uh, like a, the people just get humiliated all over again on social media, too. The whole thing's a bad idea. The whole thing is a scam. There should be a very clear ordinance. This is the next one I'd like to see passed in Clark County. That if you're a performer that is expecting tips, that you must state the price of your service in advance and not ask for a penny more. With stiff penalties for doing otherwise, that you cannot ask for or demand a tip. So this will allow people who want to sit there playing the guitar and have a hat out there to drop money in that they can still do it. But that anyone asking for a tip will be violating the law and, and very aggressively cited. Didn't someone get stabbed this year or last year in Trump? They were taking a picture with. Uh, yeah, but I think that was the case of like a. I think that was like a psycho who just kind of went nuts. I think that like the guy taking the picture was the stabber. So I don't. At first, I thought it had to do with this that maybe he was threatened and he freaked out. But I believe this wasn't related to that scam. But it is a scam. There's a lot of people that have complained about this that they get threatened, intimidated, and humiliated by these showgirls who take a picture with them and then demand outrageous money. So it's a very simple fix. Just anyone who is performing for money is not allowed to ask for or demand a tip. That they can have a tip thing out there, but they're not allowed to say one word about it of how much they're expecting. And if they want to charge for a service, then they need to have a sign that's very clear 
that says the price, and then they can't ask for a penny more. And you know what? I bet the showgirls will probably go away at that point, because if the showgirls walked around with a sign saying, pictures with a $60, like nobody would do it. But if they really want to do it for 20 or something and get enough customers, fine. I'm not against that, but people have to know what they're paying. But you have these people going, oh, come on, you let these people make a living. I go, no, not if it's about tricking people and intimidating them. No. If this is a rare thing, fine. But if, if this has become the norm, which it has, no. No. And they should make ordinances forbidding this. And then there's an easy way to enforce it, is after the ordinance is passed, send undercover officers around the Strip and downtown to see what happens. And then cite people for a lot of money, give them these stiff fines, $1,000 or something for, for breaking this. And the word will get around real quick. The word will get around real quick that people are getting these big tickets for it, for $1,000. No one's going to chance this anymore. You're not going to have any showgirls threatening anyone at that point. Or you can make it $1,000 for demanding tips and uh, arrests for any kind of intimidation. That would end this real quick. Just make it very clear to all of them what the rules are, and if they break it, tough luck. Because anyone that seeks to intimidate or harass tourists, there should be zero tolerance for them. You shouldn't feel bad for them if they get arrested or fined. You just got to clean it up. You can't let the inmates run the asylum. That's not about freedom. That's about letting people harass and intimidate tourists and shake them down for money. So that's the next thing that needs to be passed. But at least on these bridges, it's going to stop. So I'm all for the free market. I'm all for allowing people to perform for money, but it's got to be clear what they're expecting before people engage in the services. John Commode in chat wrote, how about throwing soup at the Mona Lisa done as climate protest? What the fuck? Yeah, obviously that's not okay either. Any, any destruction of property as part of protest should also never be allowed. No blocking roads, no destruction of property. And that's the problem is over the years protest, the, the definition of it has expanded and has become a lot of bad things. Protest should always be allowed, but it, it needs to be peaceful and non-destructive. And I don't care if there was the Boston Tea Party where people dumped tea in order to protest taxes on tea from uh, Great Britain, I think, or from England at the time. Like, uh, you can't apply that to today. The bottom line is that protest really needs to be peaceful and should not be destructive or inhibiting others' movement or rights. And once you get into that, then it's not protest anymore. So what needs to be preserved is people's ability to speak or hold signs, but not to cause problems from other, for others while doing so. And some people don't like that because they feel so dedicated to their cause, that they feel basically anything needs to be done, any means necessary to get the word out and to get in the news is worth it. But yeah, worth it for them, not worth it for the average person who wants no part of this shit. You should never be so selfish that you believe your cause is what matters and that you can block inconvenience or put others in danger so they can listen to you. It's their choice whether they want to stop and listen to you. You can't force them. Moving on, I'm going to tell you a story about a follow-home attempted robbery from the Commerce Casino, which 
by itself is not that common, but this one had a lot of unusual elements to it. This one was different in all ways. I've never seen one like this in several ways. So where it is common is the fact that someone got followed home from Commerce Casino after playing with the intent of robbing them. Unfortunately, this has happened a lot over the last several decades, especially from L.A. card rooms. There have been murders that have occurred from this sort of thing. It's very sad. This is something that does happen on a semi-regular basis. And as I said, it seems to be most common in the L.A. card rooms. What is typical is that they target either women or very elderly men. And the reason they do that is because they want people who are least likely to fight back. Not that a lot of people would fight back if they're at gunpoint or even at knife point, but they just want to make it even more certain that if the person fights back, that they're not going to be very much of a force. So you follow home a little Asian woman, you don't have to worry that much about her beating you up if she tries to fight back. And uh, same thing if you follow home a 90-year-old man, same thing. You can feel pretty confident that you can overpower him. So they, they typically go after the easiest targets, but then they also will use weapons to mug them. And unfortunately, sometimes this does result in murders, which is especially sad. For me personally, it's not as much danger because I don't fit that stereotype that, of who they tend to go after, since I'm a tall, middle-aged man. It's not that they would never go after me, but it's just, if you look at the victims that they typically follow home in these L.A. area card room robberies, it typically isn't someone like me. So it's not that it can't happen, and I'm always careful about it. And I also keep my money in boxes or player accounts, so I, I really am not carrying out a lot of cash. I don't want them to see me carrying out a ton of cash and then follow me, knowing they'll get a big score. So uh, I'm not that worried, but I'm always... Looking around, I'm always very cautious as I go out and, and make sure I'm not being followed. I'm not like sitting there on my phone or anything. Like there, there, I'm very vigilant when I go out of these card rooms to my car, and I also don't have money on me because I've, I've left it there at the card room. But I still think about it. Well, this robbery I'm going to talk about did occur to a middle-aged man, so it does happen. This occurred on January 19th, and. It wasn't just the victim that was unusual. The entire circumstances of this was unusual. So typically what will happen is that someone will be targeted within the casino, sometimes by a spotter who will be in there watching who cashes out with a lot of money and then will tell his friends, hey, the guy's walking out now. Here's what he's wearing. Here's what he looks like or here's what she looks like. And then they will follow them home and then they will rob them. In this case, the robbers were not very observant or were not in the casino at all because they followed home a guy who had just played at Commerce and it turned out that there was no money to rob because he had chunked it all off. <laughs> they followed home a guy who chunked off all his money who was at the very least broke for the moment. I don't know if he had money in his bank or whatever, but he didn't have money on him. He left commerce broke. 
He chunked off all his money at Commerce, and that's who they chose to rob. Can you imagine the guy goes busto at the table and walks away with no chips, and they follow him home to rob him? Not a good choice. But it gets weirder. Usually when these robberies occur, it is with real weapons, with real guns, real knives. Not here. This time, the robbers used fake guns. <laughs> they used fake guns to rob a guy who went broke at the table and had no cash on him. But wait, there's more. The robbers did not complete the attempted robbery, number one, because the guy was broke, but number two, they didn't even really get to finish their interaction. They did follow the guy home. They did confront him in his own driveway. However, he was scared away by someone coming out who heard the commotion. So who came out? Was it his scary-looking brother? Was it a neighbor who came out with a gun to scare them away? No. It was an 11-year-old boy. (laughs) This guy's 11-year-old son heard a bunch of people talking in the driveway may have heard his father's voice, whatever, but he came out to see what's going on. So he opens up the door while his dad's being robbed with fake guns and says, Daddy, you home? What's going on here? And then the robbers just took off. Now, I have to imagine the reason that they got nervous and ran off was not because they were worried about what the 11-year-old was going to do. But I think that since they knew they didn't have real weapons they might have been worried that this guy was going to start fighting them if he was trying to protect his son. It's one thing to rob him, but once he might be fearful for his son's life, he may actually start to take action. And they knew they didn't have any weapons to use against him, so they just decided to run. So they took off. Now, you may wonder, how difficult was it to follow this guy? So they got all the way to his house, and they did so undetected by him. Which, by the way, isn't that easy with me either, because I, uh, I drive in a fashion where it's not that easy to follow me. Let me just put it that way. But apparently they were able to follow this guy, and they followed him to a community called Northwood. Northwood is in Irvine, which is in Orange County. It's not super close to Commerce. Irvine to Commerce is 37 miles. So they followed the guy 37 miles, which is pretty good to follow him. And here's the last unusual thing, aside from just the distance they followed him. They followed him into a security complex that had a security guard at the gate. Now, Trader Ruski, I'll have you guess this. How do you think they possibly got past that security guard and did so fast enough to where they could follow this guy to where he lived? The guard was sleeping? That's a good guess, but that's not it. It was even dumber. They just followed right behind the guy's car. So when the guard opened the gate, they just drove in right behind him, and the guard didn't stop them. (laughs) Two cars pull up. Oh, my God. The, the guy shows whatever he needs to show to get in. The guard says, okay, opens it up, and the next car just drives right behind. The guard doesn't say anything. Just must assume they're together. So if I were this guy, I would sue the HOA over this. Because these are not cheap, these guarded communities. That really raises the HOA fee to have a 24-hour-a-day, seven-days-a-week armed guard there. 
So to have that guard there and just let them go by, I don't know if he's armed or not, maybe he wasn't, but to have a guard there 24-7, that's 168 hours a week, they got to pay that guy's salary. To have him not even attempt to stop this car that goes right behind is crazy. Like, why even have him there? So I would definitely sue the HOA if I were this guy who got almost robbed. They did end up arresting two of the people who were involved with this attempted robbery, and there's two others they're still looking for. His wife said, part of me wants to lecture my son and just say, press the alarm and go inside. There's part of me that's proud of him. Part of me that's mad at my husband for not looking at his rearview mirror, but who does that with a Gates? They've closed on my husband's car before. He hasn't been able to get in. So why should he think that someone else should be able to? So basically, she's saying that he's tried to follow people in before, and they, and they just shut the gate right away. So he assumed that there's no way for two cars to get through, that as soon as one goes through, the guard immediately hits the button and the gate closed. Uh, somehow he didn't do that here. And then she has mixed feelings about her son, that I guess her son was concerned for his father or something and just went out. Which, if, if that's true, that's a pretty brave boy to go out there when he thinks his dad's getting robbed. She said, I want to lecture my son and tell him to press the alarm and go inside. But yeah, the guy kept telling the robbers he had no money and they weren't believing him. This was actually on video. And he kept saying to the robbers, sorry, sorry, don't kill me. My family right here. I have no money to give you. And it was true. The guy had chunked off his money at commerce. So this is a very strange story all around. Getting past the security guard, the fake guns, following a guy who chunked everything off at commerce, getting scared off by an 11-year-old. Like, each of these would be unusual. But he had all of them at once. I have to imagine there's never been a follow-home robbery where an 11-year-old or any young kid scared them off. I have to imagine there was never one where they got past a security guard to follow someone. I have to imagine there was not another one where they followed someone who had actually chunked off every penny he had there. Maybe, but I'm guessing probably not. There's usually some kind of spotter to make sure they're going to get something out of this. And then the fake guns, maybe, but even there... Usually, it's real weapons, because they want to be able to, number one, not be noticed that they're having fake guns, and number two, if they get attacked back while they're trying to rob, they, they want to be able to do something about it and not get uh, overpowered by the victim. Very unusual thing all around. It is important when coming back from a card room, especially in L.A., to make sure you're not being followed. And the slower and more predictably you drive the higher chance there is for that because it's easier to follow you. Hypothetically, if you're the fastest car on the road, I'm not saying to be the fastest car on the road. I'm saying hypothetically, if you are the fastest car on the road and then there's another car keeping up with you and just going exactly where you go, that's pretty obvious. It's, it's hard to miss that. If you're going the speed of traffic, it can be a lot easier for someone to follow you. And if you're slow, it can be easier for someone to follow you. If you're signaling very far back before you're going to turn, that's another thing that can give away where you're going. So when you're going back from these card rooms, uh, you should not over-signal when you're making turns and when you're on the surface streets and, and even on freeway when you're getting off an off-ramp. And if there's any doubt, if you ever think you might be followed, 
Uh, don't ever go down a street that's kind of a dead end or, or kind of isolated. Just kind of stay out in public streets. Get back on the freeway if possible. And then just call 911 and explain where you are. Another thing you can always do is look up where a police station is and go into the police station. They're never going to follow you into a police station lot. So once they, once they see you're pulling into a police station, they will keep driving. So those are some things to do. Don't just assume you're not being followed because there have been follow-home robberies like this. And even though, again, I, I drive in a manner that it's, it's difficult to follow me, I still look back and, and make sure it's not happening. I also don't live very close to any of these card rooms, so it, it would be difficult for that reason, too. Former Resorts World CEO Scott Sabella is in the news, and he finally is in the mainstream news. I've talked about him on this show a number of times, and I wondered why there's just no coverage of his various antics. Because it seemed like story after story was occurring where he was doing something shady. And yet, Las Vegas media didn't seem to care. There is one publication called the Nevada Current, and they cared. They did very good reporting on Scott Sabella. And that's where I was getting a lot of my information. And I covered it on the show because I felt it was important to hear about. But it seemed like the Vegas media and the rest of the media just didn't really care that much. But there seemed to be controversy after controversy involving him, and he was the CEO of Resorts World, and he is no longer the CEO of Resorts World. But it seemed like problem after problem was occurring where he was at the center of it. One of the things we talked about in the past with Scott Sabella involved someone named Brandon Sattler. And we have covered that a lot on this program. Brandon Sattler was an alleged scammer who ran a company called Satcom, where he raised $10 million from investors to his Satcom company. And Satcom was supposed to install big screens all over Las Vegas at major casinos. There was a lawsuit against Sattler for just basically stealing that money and gambling with it and really not having these contracts to install these screens like he claimed. Where Scott Sabella comes into this is that a lot of money that Sattler gambled away was at Resorts World and at uh, also MGM when Sabella was CEO over there. And Sattler claimed in a filing with the Nevada Gaming Control Board that he had a relationship, not a romantic or sexual relationship, but a friendship with Scott Sabella. And that he even claimed that they sometimes had orgies together. Again, this wasn't a gay thing. They weren't touching each other, but they would uh, have multiple women together that they'd have sex with and they'd party and they'd do drugs together. Now, it's not clear if all that's true. But it is true, it seems, that Sattler and Sabella did know each other, going back to the MGM days, and that it was alleged that Sabella was allowing Sattler to keep gambling at Resorts World without ever checking the source of funds. And even when this lawsuit was going on and there were all kinds of legal actions against Sattler, 
basically stating that he was gambling with stolen money, that Sabella looked the other way and let him keep doing it. Sabella was brought in, or they attempted to bring him in, for a deposition about this, which he was fighting. And in fact, Resorts World attorneys were helping him avoid coming in for this deposition. And he just kept denying that he knew Sattler other than just very, very peripherally through briefly meeting him at uh, MGM or Resorts World. It was never proven what the exact relationship was between Sattler and Sabella. But this was said for a reason, and I, I think there had to be something to it. I think maybe Sattler, who, of course, is a known liar and uh, was probably a big scammer, so you can't trust him so much, but I don't think he was completely making this up. He did chunk off a lot of money at Resorts World while Sabella was in charge, and there were a lot of questions surrounding that. Sabella tried to claim, well, you know, I don't get involved with that aspect of the business. I don't really interface with customers that way. But that's not all. You can say, well, maybe Sattler was just outright lying, trying to run interference and a distraction regarding his own legal issues. Another strange thing happened at Resorts World, and we covered that here too, involving that guy Robin Hood 702. And this was so strange, but he had been aggressively bashing Resorts World executives, including Sabella, all over his Twitter, just very, very aggressively doing so. And yet he still played there sometimes. And this actually, this situation involved another person who was alleged to be a scammer and was alleged to be gambling money that he had scammed while at Resorts World. So Robinhood702 started taking pictures and video of this guy gambling there and claim that Sabella was allowing it. Well, this guy decided to harass Robin Hood back, and when Robin Hood was gambling there, this guy who was in like a motorized scooter, because I guess he was very overweight and had trouble walking around very well, this guy in his motorized scooter was taking video of Robin Hood 702, and Robin Hood was getting annoyed by this and kept saying, I don't want this guy videoing me. He's doing this just to get back at me. And there's no reason you would be videoing me. It's, it's fine that I'm here playing. So stop him. And he, Robin Hood claims that they were not stopping him. Finally, when they were uh, not doing anything about it at Resorts World, and Robin Hood was insisting the guy was videoing him and the guy was denying it, the guy going, what? No, I'm not. He's just paranoid. No, I'm just here. At the same time, he's here and he just hates me. and He's, he's making this false allegation. So finally, to try to prove that this guy was videoing him playing blackjack, Robin Hood ran up to him, grabbed his phone, and ran it over to security and said, here, the evidence is on the phone. He was just videoing me. If you go to the videos, you should see evidence that he was recording me. So what did they do? They not only banned Robin Hood for this, but they arrested him for taking the phone and running it to security, calling it larceny. So that is pretty bad. It's one thing to just ban both these guys and say, we've had enough of you. But they actually charged him. And apparently Resorts World was not telling the truth when they were asked about what happened. When the police were asking about what happened, they were denying this is the way it went down. 
But then when Robinhood 702's lawyers got the footage from Resorts World, it showed that his story is exactly true. That he just grabbed the phone and ran it to security in an effort to prove that he was being recorded when he was demanding that he would not be recorded. I'm not saying that Robin Hood should have the right to grab this guy's phone, but you, you don't arrest him for it. It was clear this is a dispute between these two guys, and you just boot them both out at, at worst. It was clear he wasn't stealing the phone, but they actually charged him with stealing a cell phone. They also hit him with a bogus charge of past posting at Blackjack because he quickly added another 500 onto his bet when noticing he was below the table minimum. And this was not after he had cards or anything. So a lot of shady stuff happened there. And I won't go into the rest of the story, but there's a lot of questionable stuff that happened there. And he was blaming Sabella for orchestrating this whole thing. Another thing. At Resorts World, it was alleged that a restaurant there called Tacos El Carbon was owned by a known mobster or at least partially owned by a known mobster, who was on the list of people who are not allowed to have any ownership in any kind of venture, in any kind of uh, gaming area, including a casino. And while this was never 100% proved, uh, proven, uh, it seemed like there was something to that statement. David Strauge who was convicted in 2018 of running a $10 million illegal sports betting scheme, supposedly owned more than 5% of Tacos El Cabron, and they claimed that uh, it was actually owned by his father and that uh, David Strauch wasn't really involved, but that seemed like BS. And it was alleged that Sabella was aware of this as well and had some kind of relationship with David Strauch and let him have this ownership, even though he was not allowed to do this because of his conviction of running an illegal book back in 2018. One problem after another. By the way, you can't eat at Tacos El Cabron. That's gone. It uh, closed up in May of 2022 after being open less than a year. So all this stuff going on, which of these things had Scott Sabella finally convicted of a federal charge? He's no longer the president of Resorts World. So which of these things got him? Was it the Robin Hood 702 weirdness? Was it the whole supposed relationship with Brandon Sattler, accused scammer, and letting him play there? Was it about Tacos El Cabron and the bookmaker that supposedly owned part of it? No, it was none of these things. It was actually a federal charge involving allowing a known criminal to gamble at MGM Grand when he was in charge over there. Scott Sabella pled guilty to failure to file reports of suspicious transactions. And this involves a bookie named Wayne Nix. This is not the same guy who was accused of owning Tacos El Cabron in Resorts World. This is Wayne Nix that was gambling at MGM Grand between 2017 and 2019 even though Nix was well-known as a bookie in the city. Sabella was aware that Wayne Nix was gambling, but did not notify the casino's compliance department. He also gave comps personally to Wayne Nix, including meals, rooms, and golf trips. 
Wayne Nix completed. He pled guilty in 2022 consp- to conspiracy to operate an illegal gambling business and to filing a false tax return. Court records reveal that Scott Sabella admitted that he did know Nix was involved in illegal bookmaking. But he, quote, didn't want to know because of my position. If we know we can't allow them to gamble, I didn't ask, I didn't want to know, I guess because he wasn't doing anything to cheat the casino. So basically, he was treating Wayne Nix like that old don't ask, don't tell policy in the army, where you might think somebody's gay, but you, you just don't ask them. They don't announce they're gay, you don't ask if they're gay, and as long as that's the way it stays, then you can be gay in the army. Now, that, that doesn't exist anymore, but that, that was kind of like a middle ground. Because for a while in the army, you couldn't join if you were gay. And then Bill Clinton changed it to where it was don't ask, don't tell. Where you don't ask somebody who's suspected of being gay if you're his commanding officer, and the people who are gay are supposed to just conceal it, and then just everybody looks the other way. That was once the policy in the army, like in the 90s. So I guess that's the way that Scott Sabella treated Wayne Nix, except not about being gay, but about being a bookmaker. Don't ask, don't tell. You might know he's a bookie. You might know that's why he has these millions of dollars to chunk off at MGM Grand. But if you don't actually ask him about it, if you don't say, hey, Wayne, are you actually a bookie? Is that where you got this money that you're gambling here? As long as you don't ask that. You just know it, but you pretend you don't know it and you technically don't ask him, he thought that would be okay. Because, you know, once Wayne Nix admits that he's a bookie, well, then you can't take his bets anymore. But what if you just don't ask him? What if you know, but you just don't ask him? <laughs> now, it is believed that he and Wayne Nix were close enough to where he didn't have to ask him, that he knew very well and that Nix probably even discussed it with him. But he just never formally asked him, hey, are you a bookie? Like, it wasn't like that. I think that was just the excuse. It was found enough that Scott Sibella, at the very least, knew that Wayne Nix was a bookie and that he purposely was not filing any paperwork to the casino compliance department to kind of watch out for this guy. Because what they're supposed to do is submit what's known as SARs, which is Suspicious Activity Reports. And this is a requirement of banks and casinos. It's a federal requirement. And that is when they see something that looks like it might be money laundering or anything suspicious, that they are required to inform the federal government. And then once they've informed the federal government, whether the government takes action or not isn't their business, then they don't care anymore. But it's to prevent banks and casinos from looking the other way as money laundering or anything else occurs involving money that's either uh, stolen or originally acquired through illegal activity. And casinos are a very common place for money laundering and sometimes just for criminals to chunk off because the money's coming so easy they just have a gambling habit. So I don't think this was really money laundering. I think that just this Wayne Nix guy liked to gamble. In September 2023, Scott Sabella was fired, and a spokesperson said that he had violated company policies in the terms of his employment. He was the original president, both during the construction and during its opening, just as the... uh, 
COVID pandemic was starting to lessen as far as its impact on the economy and people were just starting to go out and travel a lot. This was, uh, it opened in June of 2021. I was there a few days after it opened. And this was when the vaccine had been available to everyone for enough time to where everybody who wanted a vaccination by then could have gotten it. So a lot of people felt a lot more emboldened to travel. So that's right when Resorts World opened. So he was the one who was president at the time. The exact violation that he committed that got him technically fired from Resorts World is not exactly known. They just said that he's violated company policies in the terms of his employment. So it could have been any of these things that I was telling you about before. It could even be the MGM thing because he was under federal investigation and that was known. He did end up being cleared by the Nevada Gaming Control Board over that situation with Tacos El Cabron. So he's not going to face any charges involving that. That was only really for lack of evidence, not necessarily that uh, that bookmaker didn't own part of that too. But look at all these different allegations against him in a short time, all kind of along the same lines. Even if you like ignore the Robin Hood 702 thing, which is kind of its own weird thing. But you had a guy who was an accused scammer who was playing a lot at Resorts World when he shouldn't have been. And in fact, was told in court not to go in casinos and gamble. And is alleged to have been able to do so because Sabella enabled him to do it. You have Wayne Nix, the convicted bookmaker, who was a known bookmaker to Sabella and known to have acquired his money illegally and allowed to gamble there. And no SARs were filed against him by Sabella, like he was supposed to. And then you have this other known bookmaker that was said to have owned more than 5% of Tacos El Cabron, which is a restaurant in Resorts World. And then the Robin Hood 702, another guy, a suspected scammer, was gambling there. And then when Robin Hood was trying to prove it, then uh, he ended up getting arrested over trumped-up charges. So, I mean, that's a lot of stuff in a short time. Resorts World has been open since 2021, mid-2021. So you have this plus his activities in MGM Grand. I mean, this is a really shady guy. And I, I've been saying this for a long time. We've had a number of segments about him. So now there's coverage all over the place that the former president of Resorts World has pled guilty to a federal charge. Now everybody's talking about it. But all this other stuff that happened before, no one wanted to touch. Very weird. Vital Vegas noticed that too. Though, to be fair, I haven't really seen him talk about it. But... He did mention that there's a lot of corruption in Las Vegas, and that's what enabled this to stay silent for so long, and he was surprised by it. But there definitely does seem to be some level of corruption there in Vegas that kind of harkens back to the sort of old days of the 90s and beforehand when the mob had hold of the town. So it's no longer a mob city, but... A lot of the culture still remains in some ways. Just plays out differently. You're not having people buried in the desert, but you're having weird things happen in the justice system. And this involved federal charges. This wasn't even like local charges against him. This was federal charges. So that even makes sense here in that context, that it was the feds who eventually got him. 
But yeah, I believe that Sabella was just befriending these shady guys. And he may have been partying with them and probably doing them favors. And letting them gamble at his properties. And they lost a lot of money. And he probably felt it made him look good, too. Because these people would lose a lot and his company would make a lot of money. And usually the president of these casinos does not get involved with these individual customers. Even the whales. They have people in charge of the casino to do this. Not just the hosts, but even people above the hosts. Even like the casino managers. They'll sometimes do it for the big whales. But to have the president of the entire hotel casino develop some kind of relationship with these guys and personally giving them comps, that's already unusual in itself. Like, if there's a mega, mega, mega whale that's very different from the rest, I could see. Like that Terrence Watanabe guy, the biggest loser of all time. Steve Wynn personally called him in and said, I think you're a problem gambler and I'm banning you. And then he went over to Caesars and chunked off the rest of his fortune. So there you could understand that the biggest losing gambler of all time in Las Vegas history was just losing at such a rapid rate and seemed to not know what he's doing and just get so drunk that he couldn't see straight. And Steve Wynn's like, no, I I don't want this happening here. And personally calls the guy in and talks to him and determines he's a problem gambler and gets rid of him. Because that was a very unusual situation for huge money. But this Wayne Nix guy, he probably gambled a lot, probably lost a few million, but that's not super unusual. The amount Terrence Watanabe was losing... That was super unusual. He had to lose $60 million in a short time. So I think that Sabella just liked befriending these guys. I think maybe he had like a degenerate side that he liked hanging out with them and uh, he liked everything that came with the lifestyle these guys led and he did favors for them. That's what I think happened. And then he also saw his companies make a lot of money, which made him look good when these guys would lose. So it was kind of win-win for him until he got in trouble for it. I don't know if he was really having sex with multiple women along with Brandon Sattler. I don't know if that part's true. You know, Sattler is not a reliable guy. He could be making a lot of stuff up. But I don't think he's making up that he knew Sabella. It just fits in too well with everything else. So, as usual, Poker Fraud Alert was on it before it was a big story. I try to cover these things that a lot of other media won't cover. About poker and casinos, Las Vegas, whatever it might be. This next topic was brought to me by the forum member known as Desert Runner. And some people on the forum don't care for Desert Runner. But he's actually a personal friend of mine that I've known for almost 15 years now. And he's a good guy. He's a very, very uh, loyal friend. And he has a good heart. And this is someone I trust. And even if you don't like him as a forum poster... I like Desert Runner, and he brought this topic to me. He listens to the show also. I didn't meet him through the show. I've known him from outside of all this. He's not even a poker player. But Desert Runner brought me this story about Barstow. And this is one thing we have in common. You know, we have kind of a fascination with the whole Mojave Desert area and all that. And, you know, he, he likes all those type of stories, too. So he brought me this story about Barstow, which I think is interesting, especially to anyone who is from Southern California 
or even from Vegas. But I think even if you're from a different area, you'll find it interesting as well. So Barstow is right in between LA and Vegas off of I-15 when you make that drive. It's really like a midpoint. And it's also somewhat of a midpoint if you're driving to Vegas from San Diego. So for a lot of people driving from the southern part of California into Las Vegas, Barstow is going to be kind of around the halfway mark for you. If you're coming from like San Bernardino or Victorville, it's not quite as far as halfway, but most of the rest of Southern California, even San Diego, it is about halfway. However, Barstow is not home to any casinos, even though California has a lot of casinos. Barstow has none, and that is because in order to have a casino in California, it has to be on Indian land. And there is no Indian land in Barstow. So therefore, there can't be a casino. There could be a poker room, but there could not be a casino. So there couldn't be slot machines, there couldn't be blackjack, none of that stuff. So traditional casino games and casino machines, those just simply could not operate and exist in Barstow by California law. And that's why there is not a casino there. Now, if there were a casino there, if this was allowed, then it actually could be viable. And I'll tell you why. Because of its midpoint location, it's believable that someone who is kind of tired of the long drive, especially if there was some traffic, and would like to gamble before they get to Las Vegas, kind of like a gambling preview, so to speak, they might like to stop somewhere like Barstow, just about halfway in the drive, and gamble some, maybe eat at a restaurant there, whatever, just relax, and then move on and do the second half of the drive. It would fit in very well with the theme of going to Las Vegas for a gambling trip. Where it wouldn't fit in as well is if the casino was too close to Vegas or too close to Southern California. Because if you're leaving from Southern California to drive to Vegas, you're not going to want to stop somewhere 40 miles into the drive to gamble. That's the whole reason you're going to Vegas. You're not going to stop like right at the beginning. And if it's somewhere like Prim, you're going to go, well, that's 40 miles from Vegas. I'm so close anyway. I might as well just continue and gamble in real Vegas. Why should I stop at this imitation Vegas with a few casinos here right at the state line? So that's why these casinos wouldn't get very much traffic from people who are driving between LA and Vegas. And in addition, California does not have a single casino that's right off I-15 between Southern California and Las Vegas. The first one that's right off I-15 is in Prim, Nevada, right at the state line. So there really isn't a place to go do that. Yeah, you could go east once you get to where the 15 and the 215 junction is in the San Bernardino area and then go east to uh, Yamava. But that's still like 15 miles out of the way each direction. So people generally don't want to do that. They already have a long enough drive. There's just nothing to pull off right from I-15 to go to. But if there were, and if it were right in the middle of the drive, like in Barstow, I could see how that would work. But let's get back to the composition of Barstow. There just simply are not any Indian tribes there. So that game, set, match, it's over. You, you can't have a casino there according to California law. But what if there really is Indian land there? Well, there isn't right now, 
but two tribes are trying to claim that they have ancestral ties to the Barstow area and that, therefore, they should be given land in the Barstow area and should be able to have a casino there. The Los Coyotes Band of Cahula and the Cupeno Indians have a reservation in Warner Springs and in Lake Havasu. Lake Havasu, as you probably know, is in Arizona. Warner Springs is in San Diego County, but neither are very close to Barstow. So they are both claiming, I'm not sure if they're doing this together or if they're both competing here with the same idea, but they're both claiming that they have ancestors that were once living in Barstow. And therefore, they should be given some land over there that they can use for this casino. This would be considered an off-reservation casino because there is not any reservation there. But if this were to be approved, they're actually applying to the federal government. Now, the federal government doesn't decide whether they get the casino, but it would give them land for the tribe in Barstow, which then could enable them to open a casino there. So it's step one. They've got got to get the federal government to transfer that land into a federal trust for the tribe, something that's additionally given to them above that reservation. It's kind of like a satellite reservation in a way. Once they have that, then they can say this is the Indian land, and then they can try to open this through the state of California. So the problem is that, number one, they're not just applying to get this transferred to them as just land they'd like to have. They, they have to state to the feds what they plan to do with it. So they are honest about the fact, and they have to be honest about the fact, that this is for purposes of op- opening a casino. And the federal government has never approved such a thing. They've never given a tribe land that was for purposes of running a casino. They've never been given additional land for that reason. So it's believed that this will get rejected. There have been some cases where Indian tribes have tried some shenanigans where they would actually buy property that isn't on the reservation and then try to conduct gaming operations on this land saying, well, we bought this property, so now it's part of our reservation. And the Fed said, "Uh uh-uh, this is not a reservation, and you can't run a casino here. So basically, they have to get permission for that land to be considered part of the reservation and to where they could run a casino. They have to get it both from the Feds and from the state. So this has never happened in U.S. history. Any attempt to run a casino outside of the established reservation of the tribe has never been successful. Any way they've tried to get around it has failed. Anytime they've just opened one anyway, it's been shut down. In some cases, tribes will petition to get their reservations expanded, claiming that they're just reclaiming traditional tribal lands. But this is not really an expansion, because this is far away from where their existing reservations are. This isn't just extending their land out five more miles. This is just 
giving them entire land that has nothing to do with their existing reservation. So while tribes have been allowed to go into partnership with companies that are not tribal companies to run the casino, I think this example is Harris Rincon, or I think Foxwoods operates that way too, but they have to own it. It's still the under the ownership of the tribe. They're just allowed to hire outside companies to manage it. But as far as any kind of Indian casino running on non-Indian land, it's never happened. And there's never been one of these deals where they're getting some kind of satellite reservation because of ancient claims of having their tribe there a very long time ago, which is very difficult or impossible to verify. The other problem is that pretty much the entire U.S. could be called ancestral land for Indian tribes. Because before the Europeans got to the U.S., it was all Native Americans. So how far does this go? So you can't just say, well, a long, long time ago, some of our tribal members uh, lived over there. That's not good enough. That's not how the whole reservation system works. It's not just wherever they happen to have set foot at some point becomes their land. So it's very unlikely, in my opinion, that this will be approved. Also, other tribes in California have given up on any idea like this. These are two tribes that are trying it at the moment, but there's a lot of other tribes that either have tried in the past and have given up or ones that won't even try because the chance is so low. In fact, some of them have been jerked around where they bribe local officials to go along with their plan or bribe the city itself by donating to them. And then just the city keeps kicking the can down the road saying, uh, well, we still don't have a way to do this. You know, maybe if, if we got a little bit more of a donation here to the city, we could allocate some time for this. And they just find out they're being screwed with. <laughs> they just keep donating money to get these opened and uh, get the city's help. And it never happened. So between that and this never being successful on a federal level, there's also a belief that other tribes don't want to see things like this happen because it's more competition and that they actually pressure feds in the reverse way to say, don't ever let this happen if any other tribe tries to claim that they should have this land in a place they'd like to have a casino. It's bullshit. Don't believe them. (laughs) So I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't see it. It's just like a shot in the dark. Some people believe these two tribes are wasting time and resources trying to make this come true with this pie-in-the-sky idea they're going to get a casino in Barstow. So kind of an interesting idea, but it's not going to happen. A casino that does exist, but not in California, had some controversy. It's one I'm sure you haven't heard of before, unless you live in that area. That would be Oxford Casino in Maine that had a little bit of an issue with an error involving free play. Oxford Casino is located kind of in the middle of nowhere in Maine. It is kind of by Lewiston, if you've heard of that. It's not that close to the coast. It's kind of inland. It's kind of halfway between the coast and the New Hampshire border in southern Maine. So as I said, Lewiston is the closest city to it. 
of any consequence. It's a locals casino. It kind of looks like a motel if you look at it, a picture of it. It's called the Oxford Casino Hotel. But there's not a lot of choices in Maine itself to gamble, so you take what you can get. But this is not a gigantic Vegas-style casino. This isn't like Foxwoods or anything. So they, they don't have a very big budget over there. And therefore, they can't just hand out free play like it's candy. And they can't absorb big losses because they're a small operation. Well, they made a pretty big mistake given their size, and it involved free play. They were having some kind of drawing where they were going to hand out $250 free play to five lucky people. And I bet you know where I'm going with this. They made a mistake with the drawing somehow. And they ended up emailing a lot of people. I don't know how many, but way, way, way more than five. And all these people got emails that they were winners. And they got very excited. Oh, wow. I was one of the winners. $250, sweet. Like, it's not huge money, but yeah, it's nice. It's nice to get an email saying you just won $250 free play to your local casino. I'm not sure how this happened, but they quickly realized the mistake... And they sent out another email explaining that they unintentionally sent this email to a lot of people who had not won, and they apologized for the confusion, and that if you're receiving this email, that you were one of them who was not actually a winner. So this got people very angry, because it felt like uh, an Indian giver situation. <laughs> it felt like they uh, were promised something, that they got all excited about it, and they were told, oh, actually, you didn't win, sorry. And people wanted them to honor it. And the casino is saying, no, we can't. We can't afford this. We sent it to too many people. I'm sorry. And like, I understand the casino's point. Because they're not big. They're not deep-pocketed. And if they really fired out this $250 prize to way too many people, this could be very expensive for them. I don't know how many people got it, but let's say they sent it to... 500 people, that would be $125,000 that they would be basically wasting. They sent to people for, uh, they sent to people by mistake. The people who felt they should honor it were saying, number one, you told us we won, so we won. And number two, this will encourage us to come in and gamble. So yeah, We'll play the free play, but we're not, we're not going to just play the free play and leave. Come on, guys. We're going to keep playing here. We'll probably lose it back. Well, to that I say, bullshit. Now, some probably would, but I have to imagine a lot of the people would just play it and leave. So it's not like it's a guarantee the casino is going to get it back. When a casino sends out any kind of offer... I don't know about in Maine, but I know in Vegas it's this way, and I have to imagine in Maine it's this way too. They are not obligated to adhere to the offer. They can revoke it at any time. In many cases, they won't if it's something that will make them look bad, where the publicity cost of revoking it or the cost of pissing off good customers isn't worth it. Sometimes we'll just eat it when there's a mistake. But they're not required to eat it when there's a mistake. 
So they are allowed to rescind any kind of promotion at any time. This includes any free play given to you. This involves any kind of comp hotel rooms or comp food. The only thing they can't really do without running into a problem is after the fact removals of comps. So for example, if you're told you have a comp room when you check in, and then when you leave, they try to present you with a bill. They can try, but you could have a pretty good argument as to why you don't want to pay. Because it was told to you it was comp, and it's kind of a bait and switch to then charge you whatever they feel like charging you at that point. Now, they could stop you in the middle of your stay and say, look, uh, we gave you four comp nights, but you've stayed two. If you want to stay the other two, it's going to be a rate, and here's the rate, and if you don't like it, you can leave. They can do that. They usually don't do that in Vegas, but I'm just saying they could do that. But to charge you after the fact, when you show up with a comp offer, I don't believe you could be compelled to pay. You could be banned for not paying, but I don't believe they could compel you to pay for it because you were quoted a rate of zero. So all they can do is revoke what you haven't received yet. So when there's a mistake, they can revoke it. And in some cases, it does make sense. If In some cases, if they have made an egregious mistake that's going to cost them way too much money, then yeah, they can and should revoke it. And it feels shitty if you're the one who thought you won, but you got to understand if it's a small place, you can't expect them to honor it. Because it's going to take them a long time to make back that money that they're going to lose through this free play. And what a lot of locals will do is just go down there and run it and leave. Because the locals... They're not on vacation, so it's not like they're going to be staying at the casino and fig- figuring, hey, we're here to gamble, so now that the free play is over, let's keep gambling. Like, a lot of people just come down there and run the 250, and whatever they win, they win, they'll cash out, and they leave, and they'll have a nice bonus for the week. That's the truth. So I don't blame them for refusing to do this, especially they sent out an email, I don't know how long it took, but they did send out a clarification email when they realized it. But some people are angry about that, and yeah, I see both sides of it. I'd be annoyed if this happened, too, to me. But at the same time, I wouldn't be, like, super outraged. Now, I would get mad if it's something that's small, especially if it's a big company that has given it away, and then they regret it, or there was some kind of mistake, and then they try to take it away. So, like, for example, let's say I got an email from Caesars saying, come down anytime and and get your $25 food credit. And then I come down, oh, I'm sorry, that was sent to you by mistake. I would say, come on, guys. This is a freaking $25 food credit. It's not even a real hard $25. Just eat it. You know, like, it now, if they were to send me a, a message shortly after that saying that this is not real and it was a mistake, then fine. But like, if I got there and they didn't want to honor it saying it was a mistake, even if I knew they were right it was a mistake, I'd be pissed and say, no, you need to honor this. That's not fair to bring me all the way down here and then tell me, oops, it was a mistake. Now, if it's something larger, it becomes more complicated, especially if you're coming from a distance. So if you come a long way to go to Las Vegas, and then they say, oh, sorry, the offer we gave you was a mistake, they can, but it's kind of shitty to do, to send someone down there and then say, oh, sorry, we messed up. This is a fine line with these things. But I understand why this Oxford casino did it. I'm going to give you a bonus topic related to it that just came to mind that I had forgotten about, but this reminded me because it's similar. The Nobu Hotel 
gave away a number of impossibly cheap reservations to people for the very expensive Super Bowl weekend, and then they were trying to take it back. About seven weeks ago, people who were looking for rates during Super Bowl weekend were very pleasantly surprised to see that the normally expensive Nobu Hotel, which is a tower within Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, was shockingly cheap for what should be one of the most expensive weekends in Vegas. And that would be Super Bowl weekend, where the Super Bowl actually is in Las Vegas. So it's very, very expensive to get any hotel room for that weekend. And yet Nobu, which is the most expensive hotel of all the Caesars properties in Vegas, for some reason was the cheapest. And people were noticing this, and they were booking rooms, of course. So they would see a room for like 150 bucks per night. And this would be a room that would normally be charged like 1200 per night during that particular weekend. So anyone who noticed this, who wanted to go during the Super Bowl weekend, was booking it. It didn't take too long for Caesars to figure this out. And they eventually sent out emails to about 50 different people who had booked these impossibly cheap rates. Now, these rates weren't like so low that you couldn't believe someone got a hotel for that. So people weren't getting like $5 hotel rooms, but they were getting like $150 hotel rooms for ones that should have been over 1000 So people were getting emails, and it was estimated about 50 people received these emails, saying that it was booked by mistake, that the price that was quoted was erroneous due to a malfunction on the website, and therefore they are being moved to a different property. And they were told they were being moved to properties like Flamingo and The Link, which are kind of the bottom-end Caesars properties in Vegas, and for around the same price. So these people were crying foul about this, saying, wait a minute, we have the confirmation. We have it that we booked the Nobu Hotel, which is much, much nicer than the Flamingo or the Link. And we had this for several weeks, and now you're dropping this on us that uh, you're taking it away. What the hell? You can't do that. And they are insisting that they're not taking it away. They're just giving you a substitute hotel within their portfolio in Vegas because what you booked was in error. Now, I'm not sure what the legality is regarding that. I know they can't just simply take it away unless it is so egregious that it would be impossible. So again, like a $5 booking they could take away. Something like 150 even though that's way, way, way below market value, that might be harder for them to justify. But I do believe legally they can move them to a different hotel. And it's hard for them to fight because these people still have a place to stay and they are still getting these rooms at less than market value. This was reported by someone who goes by Vegas Starfish on Twitter. And Vegas Starfish is kind of controversial because she has been accused of shilling for various Vegas properties where she's getting some kind of benefit for posting a positive review 
of their business. And John Mahaffey has really been after her for this, and they have a big feud going on. He's someone who's written a lot of truly unbiased articles about Vegas and hates seeing this. So he called her out, then she blocked him and said he was a troll. And The truth is, she has very, very thin skin and blocks anyone who mentions this or politely asks about it. And I know because I asked her, and I was not mean, I was not rude, I wasn't trolling at all. I was asking serious questions about like whether she had a relationship with these, and if she realizes that, yes, if you receive any form of compensation that you have to mention this when you're reviewing something. And that includes any kind of free things they give you, even if they're not directly paying you. And she just blocked me. And then she posted a general message that she's blocking all the trolls and haters who are harassing her. So that's, that's very sleazy to do. If someone calls you out about it, you, you've got to look and see if they're correct. And to just call them trolls and haters and announce you're blocking them, that doesn't solve anything. That just shows you're not taking responsibility for your mistakes. So she started getting some flack over reporting this. And then John Mahaffey did further research into the story, and and he was the one who put out the full details. She was just saying that they are taking people's reservations away and moving them to Flamingo and Link so they can sell these rooms for more money, which sounds much worse. It sounds like someone just booked it early and got a better price, and then Caesars is like, nope, we want to make more money, so we're booting you over to a cheaper hotel, and we're going to resell your room for more. Now, that would be really shitty if they did that. But when John looked into it, and he's no Caesars apologist. He's had some issues with Caesars himself. When he looked into it, he found out that this was from this pricing error. By the way, I was aware of this pricing error. So this wasn't the first I had heard of it. So John isn't just saying this to make her look bad. So anyway, it looks like the way John reported it is probably true, and she did kind of exaggerate that made Caesars look worse. Now, was she doing this for clickbait, or was she doing it because her either husband or ex-husband, who she has kids with, is the manager of the MGM Grand Poker Room, I believe. I know he works for MGM Grand, I think for the Poker Room. So people were criticizing her, saying, it sounds like you're just trying to make Caesars look bad because your husband works for MGM. Now, in her defense, she got to be known on Twitter because of her aggressive coverage of the MGM hack. And her coverage was not very favorable to MGM. So that would say that she's willing to bash MGM and is not just finding reasons to kiss their ass and bash Caesars. But at the same time, as John pointed out, when you're bashing Caesars, it really is ethical to state in your coverage that your husband or even your ex-husband you have kids with is a manager at MGM, which is a competing property. That's part of the ethics of journalism that you have to disclose conflicts. And that's why sometimes you'll be reading CNN and they'll be reporting on a company that they partially own or, or completely own, and they'll disclose that at the end. So you don't have to report that something is the direct competition to you. So if CNN is reporting on Fox News, they don't have to put a disclosure. Fox News is our direct competitor. Like They don't have to say that. That's obvious. 
but they do have to report any kind of conflict of interest in their reporting. So Vegas Starfish has been accused of not doing that by John Mahaffey, and they, they have a big feud going on on Twitter. So that's how I really took notice of all this, <laughs> the whole thing that happened with Nobu. I don't know if these 50 people are ones who got any kind of casino rate, but I have to imagine they're not. I think these are just regular people who are paying the rack rate. And the reason I believe this is because it is much easier for Caesars to determine that people got a rate that was far too cheap if it was not influenced by casino comps. Because it's hard for them to roll back the clock seven weeks and figure out who was entitled to comps then and who wasn't. I don't think they keep that data around. So it's much easier to roll back seven weeks and look who booked with no comp rate. That was just a regular rack rate for the hotel and who got it way too cheap. That's very easy to see. It's not easy to see if the guy who got a big discount or a comp really should have deserved it. So I I have a feeling these 50 people were just like regular bookings who had no comps or discounts related to their play. That's just my guess. And I think that's why it was only 50 people. Finally, I want to talk about Poker Fraud Alert and the GPI Awards. Because this has become kind of a minor annoyance. Something I mention every year. And it's not that important to me. In fact, it's not important at all. But it's something I notice every year. And I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't getting a little bit on my nerves. The GPI Awards occur yearly. And they give recognition to people and entities in poker in various areas. And they try to cover everything. They will give you an award for best poker hand, for breakout performance, for best tournament performance, for best venue. They even have one for best trophy. They have for best short form content best creator, blah, blah, blah. So best this, best that. And then they actually have a real award ceremony where people attend, like a real formal award ceremony. They've had this for a while. This is the Global Poker Index, who also currently owns thehendedmob.com. They didn't start the Hended Mob, but they bought it. So they have this awards ceremony and process every year near the beginning of the year for the previous year's uh, stuff that they're judging. And there is a category for best podcast. And even though we're a live show, we're also a podcast. In fact, most people listen to it in podcast format. And yet we never get nominated. I think once we were on a list of possible nominees, but then we didn't get nominated. I think that's the closest we ever got. But we've never been nominated. And it seems to be the same ones nominated every year these days. And it's nothing against these other podcasts. And keep in mind, they can only nominate four of them. So I know there's going to be a lot of podcasts that get snubbed. There's a lot more than four poker podcasts out there. So the four that got chosen this year as nominees were Only Friends, you know, Matt Berkey, Poker in the Ears, which is a Poker Stars production with James Hardigan and Joe Stapleton, the Chip Race podcast, which is run by Unibet and is hosted by David Lappin and Dara O'Kearney, 
and then Thinking Poker, which is Andrew Brokos and Carlos Welch. And I seem to see these four every year, at least since Only Friends started. They're, they're newer, but I keep seeing these other three constantly. And two of them are associated with a major poker site. Poker in the Ears is Poker Stars, and the Chip Race is Unibet. So that has to be considered, too. I'm not saying they should be disqualified, but when these are the official podcasts of a large online poker company, like, do you really consider that a podcast for the community? Even if the people doing it are within the community, I think that should be considered, too. I think there should be more of a preference given to independent creators that aren't associated with something large, like Poker Stars or Unibet. I'm not even saying it has to be Poker Fraud Alert. I'm just saying I'd like to see where that is given some kind of consideration, especially because it seems like these keep being nominated over and over. I don't even know what criteria they're using as far as what's best. What counts as the best podcast? Is it the most interesting? Is it the most prolific? Is it one that covers the most topics? Is it one that covers the topics best? Is it one with the best sound quality? <laughs> what is it? Like, what, what is the best podcast? And I also don't like how video shows are now being grouped in with podcasts, which I know they're still called podcasts by some people, but I think it should be a separate category. They already have like a million categories anyway. Why not have separate categories for podcasts and video shows? Like only friends shouldn't be on there because they are a video show. There should be one for audio podcasts and one for video shows or video podcasts. But I keep seeing the same ones over and over, really. And I notice there's the same omissions over and over. Like, I mentioned this last year. I mentioned it the year before. The basically reincarnation of the 2 plus 2 poker cast, which is called Dat Poker Podcast with Adam Schwartz, Terrence Chan, and Daniel Negreanu, that's never gotten nominated. So at least I, I feel good there. <laughs> they don't get it either. Because I'd kind of expect they would, but they don't. So they get snubbed every year, too. But you might ask, why would I feel Poker Fraud Alert should get any nomination? There's a lot of poker podcasts out there. Why should this be one that gets in the top four? At least one year give us the top four. But I'll tell you some things about Poker Fraud Alert as to why I feel that we do deserve some kind of recognition. I'm not trying to brag here. I'm not trying to say I'm better than everybody else or this show's better than everybody else. I'm trying to say that we have some areas where we are number one or close to number one. Poker Fraud Alert is number one in total hours broadcasted lifetime. There is no other poker show out there that has broadcasted for more hours than Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You will not find one. Go ahead and look. We're number one in the number of topics covered. Now, you can say that's related to the first one, that we've had the most hours broadcasted, that we also had the most topics, but not necessarily. You know, you can have topics that take a very long time. But look per week how many topics we cover. And even though we're not doing the show every week anymore, when we were... We still had a ton of topics every week. So we really do cover everything. Think of how many different obscure topics we cover here that a lot of other podcasts won't. 
Some because they're too controversial and they don't want to touch them. And some because they just haven't found them or don't have an interest in covering them. So we really cover a large breadth of topics. But we're number one at all time in number of topics covered of all poker podcasts ever. We are number one in money recovered for cheated players. Now, we don't do that every week. Like this week, we're not doing it. This week, we're not recovering one's money. But how many shows have that interest at all? How many shows will bring people on and fight for them? How many shows will have a host that will just work with strangers to get their money back when they get screwed in some way? Usually by companies, by casinos, whatever. I'm not even talking about from individuals, though I've helped with that too. So we're number one in doing that too. There's never been a show that has recovered as much money for cheated players as Poker Fraud Alert has. We're also number one in money given away in free rolls and contests. Yeah, most weeks we're not giving away a ton. We gave away 50 this week. But we are number one in the overall amount of money given away in free rolls and contests. And that's because we have them very, very frequently. It's a regular feature on the show. And we've been around for a long time. So no poker podcast has given away more money than we have. Now, here's where we're not number one. We're number two in the longest running podcast. There is one show that is ahead of us, and that is Bernard Lee's show, which I believe has existed since like 07. But once he decides to hang it up, provided we're still around, we will be the longest running one. And I'm not including the other shows I was involved with. That's totally separate. But Poker Fraud Alert Radio has been running now for almost 12 years. So we're number two in that. Now, there is one category where we're not that close to number one or number two. If you rank shows by percentage of live shows starting on time, we're number 15,367. (laughs) including tonight we didn't start on the time we said though not that far at least we started before the free roll started so i'll give you guys that one if it if you're going to rate us on on time performance uh, we're not very good but i think this show deserves some recognition at some point and it's funny going through the gpi nominees because There's a lot of duplicate categories, not about podcasts. In fact, I wish there was more about podcasts, but there's a lot of media-related categories where you have like best media content video and then best media content creator and best media content short form. So what happens is you have the same people being nominated over and over for this similar things. Even if they do good work, I'm not even saying the people who were nominated didn't do something good or funny or whatever. I'm just talking about how there's a lot of duplicating content content but then for the podcasts it's four and that's it and it seems to be the same ones nominated every year so it'd be nice to get some recognition because we really are doing a service for the poker community with a lot of our content some of it is just straight up news and opinion stuff about poker and gambling and that's not really a service now it is true this show is being run without any kind of financial motivation, which I think should also give us a leg up. Not only aren't we part of a big poker site like PokerStars or Unibet, but we're also not promoting our own business. 
Like take Matt Berkey's only friends. He's doing that to promote his solve for why business. That's why he's doing it. He seems to enjoy having it too, but that's why he puts the effort into it that he does. It's an offshoot of his business, even though it doesn't direct money. It, it doesn't directly make money, but it promotes his business that does make money. Now, that's fine. I'm not criticizing that he's doing that. But I'm just saying that this is a show that is not running with that motivation. I'm not promoting anything. I'm not making any money. I'm losing money. So that should be considered as well when you think about what they quote best poker podcast. If it's just an extension of your business to get eyeballs on your business, I, I think that should be a strike against you as far as winning any awards. Or at the very least, to give a positive vote to the ones that aren't doing that. The ones that really are just doing it because they want to put the content out there with no ulterior motive. But we cover such a wide variety of topics and with such detail. And we've been here for so long and we give away all this money that admittedly is usually coming from our listeners, which I appreciate very much. But we run these contests and free rolls and give away money. I try to cover all these different subjects about poker and gambling in Las Vegas and anything that I think someone who's into that sort of world, even as a recreational gambler or even just someone who has a interest in that sort of thing, even if they don't really gamble themselves or play poker themselves. And we have listeners like that. We have a number of listeners who do not ever gamble and don't ever go to Vegas, but they like hearing this stuff. But I try to cover anything that's interesting like that. And I try to make it clear for every listener, not just the ones who are experts on the subject, but for people who don't know much about the subject. That's why I'll stop and explain things sometimes. It makes the show longer. It can make the topic seem longer-winded, but at least everybody understands. And then whenever people have issues where they're getting screwed, I stand up and say, hey, tell me the information that's going on, and I agree you're getting screwed. I'll I'll amplify this for you. I, I will fight for you, and I have. The biggest recent example was getting Mandy back her 250000 that Ignition wasn't paying her. But we have a lot of things like that. Basically, whenever it comes up. And sometimes I'll look at it and think, okay, the person's in the wrong. I'm not going to help them. But if I think they were wronged, I will help them. And again, I don't ask for anything. I don't ask for a piece of the recovered money or anything like that. So don't you think we deserve, at the very least, a nomination for Best Poker Podcast? And I try to throw in subjects about me, just so you can get to know me. That's why I tell these stories, Druffy Time Theater, and other stuff just about my life, just so you can get to know me, and things that have happened with me, and even... Things like when I go get a colonoscopy, I tell you guys about it, which I, I, I'm not telling people because I want to tell them about every medical issue I have. I, I just felt that it was something people would want to hear because a lot of listeners are around that age that I think it's important for them to get one. And we did have a listener who got a colonoscopy and had a polyp found that was an adenoma that wouldn't have done it if we hadn't done that segment. He told me that. So I try to put out a show that people will enjoy listening to, that will be entertaining, that will be interesting, that they can hear about topics that otherwise they would not really hear discussed elsewhere, and about topics that are being discussed where they could hear my perspective and my analysis of it, given my 
experience in the poker world, given my experience in the gambling industry. And sometimes my take on it is not the same as where you hear everywhere else. And you can see it from a different perspective. And I, what, I can't get one nomination over this? Now, winning a GPI award doesn't really mean much. Like, if I won a GPI award, that wouldn't do anything for me specifically. I wouldn't get any additional opportunities. I wouldn't get any money. But it'd be nice to have. Even being nominated would be nice. Just, just, just kind of like recognition of the effort put into the show. Now, do I need that? No. Because what I need is an audience. What I need is enough people listening to where I feel I'm not wasting my time to do all of this. So if I had 10 people listening every week, I wouldn't do this. It just wouldn't be worth the time. Because any time I take on this is time I'm taking out of my life. But with the audience we have, which is in the four figures, that's fine. You know, we're not a gigantic show. We never will be. But that's fine. I'm glad I have that many people that want to listen to me. Even if it's just to fall asleep. So anyway, that's just my little rant about this. I know it seems like I am really hurt by this, but I'm not. Like, I, I can't stress enough. I'm not, like, stressed about this. I'm not hurt about this. I'm not pounding on tables because I'm angry I didn't get nominated. I mean, I expected it wouldn't get nominated. I'd, I'd be shocked if I was nominated, to be honest. I just keep seeing the same ones over and over, at least if they rotated them, at least if I saw, like, different nominees every year. Like, nominate the Dat Poker podcast at some point. I think they deserve a nomination, too. Why don't they get one? They can fight their own battles. I'm just saying that I've seen other podcasts suffering this same bullshit. I think they're just lazy. They just get used to certain podcasts they like. And like oh, let's, who should we nominate? Four spots. Well, let's see here. Uh, when Poker Stars does one, yeah, and Unibet does one, and the others are pretty good. Okay, and Thinking Poker, yeah, it's always that Andrew Brokos guy talking about poker strategy. Yeah, they put him on there, and uh, let's see, we need a fourth one, a fourth. Oh, yeah, Berkey started that show like two years ago. Okay, let's give it to him. A lot of people watch that. That's probably the process. Does Poker Stars in, uh, sponsor? It seems like these are shows that like are directly uh, associated with those particular sites. It's not just a sponsor. It really looks like that this is like the Unibet show and this is the Poker Stars show. No, 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 no I know, but I'm saying, hey, do they sponsor the award? Show? Oh, no, that's a good question. No, uh, I don't believe so. I know they don't sponsor the awards directly. Maybe they have some association with GPI. That's a good theory, though. I wonder if there's some kind of money that changes hands between GPI and PokerStars and Unibet, and that's why they feel more motivated to promote those two podcasts. That's a good point. Well, advertising dollars. I mean, when you didn't win the uh, trolling po- female poker players that put up GoFundMe for fake cancers... I knew something was wrong. Yeah, well, to be fair, though, uh, Jamie LaFay, she should have been nominated for uh, for best uh, scammy GoFundMe. <laughs> but, but you know what? She shouldn't have won, though. She should not have won the best scammy GoFundMe because I do believe she actually has cancer. There were other elements that were scammy in the GoFundMe, but, but not that she actually has cancer. Uh, but uh, I think the best scammy GoFundMe would actually go to Rob Mercer who completely made up having cancer. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, there really should be a best fraudulent GoFundMe category because we had two very strong nominees for 23, which would be covered in these awards. I could see the PFA scammies come out. 
<laughs> that's that is funny though in 2023. It's not funny. It's sad that we, we had two different controversies involving GoFundMe and cancer. One being someone who had cancer but was lying about a bunch of other stuff and exaggerating everything. And then and has been running this whole routine for like 12 years. And, and then we have the other who just completely made it all up. <laughs> it was actually the worst one. He was actually much worse than Jamie, Rob Mercer. Oh, my goodness. Yep, that's the poker world for you. Maybe they should at least have a best scam category that just kind of catches everything. I think Rob Mercer may win best scam for 23. It wasn't the most money, but it was a good scam. He got a lot of people there. Didn't get me, but he got a lot of people. Well, anyway, that that's it. That's all I've got for tonight. It's funny, after last show, I said, all right, it was a long show. I split it into two parts. That good, it'll give people some time to listen. I'll do it in about two weeks. Then got a little bit later than two weeks. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do this like maybe like two weeks and two days after the last show. And I'm like, just about to start, and I'm starting to feel a cold coming on, and I go, no, not, no, 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 no. Why couldn't this have happened, like, right after the last radio where I wasn't going to do it anyway? It has to happen, like, right when I'm going to be doing the show. So that's unfortunate timing. But I got through it. Hopefully it doesn't bring up my cold all over again. If there's any topics you want me to cover, always text me, 775-372-8355. Can't guarantee I'll cover it, but I might. Sometimes I go, oh, I didn't even think of that. Or, oh, I haven't heard of that. And then I cover the topic. You can text me anytime. 775-372-8355. Day or night. If you haven't registered on the forum, you should do so. And if you just want to post on the scam scandals and shadiness or poker community discussion or casinos in Las Vegas portion, you can do that there. There'll be no trolling, I promise you. If there is, I'll delete it. And you can check out VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is the sister site to Poker Fraud Alert. That site has a lot of weirdness, though. (laughs) I'll warn you right there. It's not just about Vegas Casino Talk. It's like a lot of people who were once on the Wizard of Vegas forum who kind of came over here. And a lot of their little existing feuds carried over. And I just let it play out, you know. I just kind of let the site run itself. And I, I don't let it go too overboard, but it's pretty much like a free speech version of Wizard of Vegas. And when I say that, I mean it's like the same user base and people can go there and they know they can say things without their posts getting deleted or being banned. But that also brings over a lot of drama. Fortunately, which doesn't involve me. Fortunately, the the site is pretty like low stress for me, Vegas Casino Talk. Because I'm just not part of any of that drama. I'm not part of those fights. I'm just kind of the one who's the host of all that over there. And they understand that. People are pretty respectful over there of me. So they don't try to drag me in. So that's good. It's kind of a low impact on my life site to run. But I didn't start this site. It was actually Alan Mendelson, former LA consumer reporter turned uh, video poker player, who passed away in 2022, but handed me the site a number of years ago and I renamed it to Vegas Casino Talk so it's a combination of the content since I took over and the content which was there when he was running it and his son actually participates these days in fact it was very weird because his son took a trip to Vegas on the identical days I took and we even went to some of the same places 
We were both at Nobu at the exact same time and didn't realize it. We both were at Hoover Dam, though on different days. We both were with our girl and our kid, with one kid. A lot of similarities. I'm older than he is, though. But uh, it's funny seeing the parallels of those two trips. But yeah, you can check out Vegas Casino Talk if you are curious about that. I am the sole owner and operator of it, just as I am of Poker Fraud Alert, even though they have different histories. In fact, Vegas Casino Talk actually goes back further than Poker Fraud Alert. It goes back to 2010 when I wasn't running it. I wasn't even there yet. I showed up in uh, 2013 there. And I moved up from regular user to tech guy to owner. Not really intentionally. I didn't show up there saying, hey, I'm going to take over this forum. It just kind of happened. This just kind of landed in my lap. It doesn't make money, though. It's not monetized. Just like Poker Fraud Alert isn't. I've got a banner at the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert that when people click on it, I get a small piece of whatever they purchase on Amazon, but that's the only form of income this site has. And believe me, I do not get very much from that. It does not come close to paying the bills, so this site does lose money every single month by design. But anyway, I'm just happy. I do have a loyal audience here that enjoys the show. And that's a lot more important than any stupid awards. I'd be much happier to have the current situation than have a smaller audience and get an award. I don't care that much about awards. It's just kind of an annoyance that I'm not getting the credit or recognition for this show and everything it's covered. It's just a mild annoyance because I'm not someone who brags. I just know when I deserve something. And if I'm not getting it, if I'm not getting the recognition that I, I feel that I deserve at least one year, you know, don't nominate me every year, but one year, that's all I ask. Give me one nomination. Pick somebody else, you know. If you want to nominate this show and nominate three others and pick one of the others, I'll be fine with that too. Just like we don't exist? All right. I don't want to sound too bitter. It's hard to bring this up without sounding bitter because like, I'm like much less bitter than it sounds. All right, that's it. That's really it. I'm not going to just keep talking. Some of you would be happy if I keep talking, just make this show super long. Someone, I'm not going to mention any names, someone, not anyone on Poker Fraud Alert, but someone said, very recently, that when I'm right, it's for the wrong reasons. And what the hell does that mean? (laughs) What the hell does that mean? When I'm right, it's for the wrong reasons. You're either right or you're wrong. There's no such thing as right for the wrong reasons. You can accidentally be right, but you can't be right for the wrong reasons. If you make a statement and it's correct, it's a right statement. If you make a statement and it's wrong, it's a wrong statement. It's a dumb thing to say, but not particularly surprising. I just got a message from Trader Ruski. This is good timing, at least. We're ending. Men's group starting. Have a good day, Druff. <laughs> we almost beat the men's group from starting. But no, it, it just barely started as Poker Fraud Alert was ending. Maybe I should start my own awards and then not give the Global Poker Index any awards. That's what I should do. I should... Make an award like 
best poker index and then give this to like Card Player Magazine <laughs> or WSOP.com. Just leave out everything except for the Hendon Mob, which is owned by Global Poker Index. I don't think it's malicious. I just think they're lazy. Like, I don't even know anyone there. Like, I know of them. They know of me. But I, I don't think this is malicious. I, don't, I would say so if I thought this is being done, like, in a biased fashion. Like, they hate me. I don't think they hate me. I think they just are lazy and they just go with what they know. It's like you ask someone, what's the best restaurant in your town? And they just mention the restaurants they go to. And they don't really put any research into it. And they don't ask around. They just think, well, what restaurants do I go to? Okay, and they just list them. And those are the best ones. It doesn't mean the ones they go to are bad. I'm just saying they don't put research into it. But maybe Trader Risky is right. Maybe Unibet and Poker Stars do have some financial relationship with GPI where they're doing them a favor. I'm not saying these are bad shows. I know some people like the Chip Race podcast, and I don't really know this Poker Stars one, but may- maybe they're good shows, you know? Like, I'm, I'm not even trying to say that. But they get nominated every year. Just give me a chance one year. Just one year. Come on. One year. Make it 2025, okay? It's too late for 24. Nominate me in 25 and make me lose, and I'll shut up about this forever. All right. That's it. Shalom.